He's introduced, I'm going to just send you the panel if you don't remember this. Yeah. It's wild. He's introduced with like cops pointing a gun at him. Yes. In this outfit. Uh. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. Only hope is X-Men. Welcome to Cerebro, the X-Men podcast, where a homo and his friends dig deep into the history of Homo Superior. I'm your host, Connor Goldsmith, and with me today is senior producer of podcasts for Crooked Media, Kendra James. New job title, you may notice, from the last time she was on the podcast for the Monet episode, Mazel to you, Kendra. She is also the author of the upcoming memoir, Admissions, detailing her time as one of the few black students at an elite boarding school. That will be out January 18th, 2022, and you can pre-order it now. Kendra, how are you today? I'm good. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be back for another marathon podcasting episode. <laughs> yeah, well, this this is um, this is one that we definitely have had on the schedule for a bit it was going to be july but it ended up we're recording august 1st i mean we only missed it by a day that's fine yeah well i (laughs) fell behind also because when i was in la with you yes and others (laughs) in la seeing all my friends the airbnb i was in the wi-fi situation was not ideal and so editing became oh problematique so (laughs) i uh, because it's like hmm where can i go to edit this like i guess with headphones in i can do it at starbucks but like it was not no not that you need to be connected to the internet to edit but i'm like fact checking things i'm like you know i'm just oh yeah yeah, totally so i ended up falling behind a couple times in that time in june so the pride month just sort of stretched into july and (laughs) now we are out the other end we are here to talk about Actually, coming out of Pride Month, it's kind of fun. I did um, Sunspot and Cannonball. So they're like, not gay, but like, mm, you know, like. (laughs) And then Sync is very straight, but has the rainbow aura, which is fun. And here's the thing about that. Um, I had forgotten that detail. And so when he came back, back to life. Yeah. I found out about that on the internet because I have not really been like keeping up with X-Men comics as I think we talked about before. Yeah. So I saw the art and I saw the art specifically uh, from the stuff surrounding the Hellfire party. When he was in the like rainbow trench. Yeah. Yes. And so uh, me just sort of skimming through, through Twitter and then like kind of skimming through Tumblr. I thought they had brought him as a gay man. (laughs) (laughs) And this is not all on me. First, yes, there was the art. And then I was reading people, what people were taking from that art, yeah. uh, rather than actually reading what the plot of the comic was. Uh, and I got those two things confused. <laughs> yeah, there were a lot of weirdos being like, who's this new gay character? And it's like <laughs> fake nerds. Like this is an old character. It's a pre-existing character. And well, he's that not too. Gay. He just has a rainbow aura, friends. One of the things on this podcast is like, which characters should come out? And I'm always like, all of them. But Sync is one where I'm like, that character should be straight because we don't need an actual rainbow emitting aura. Yeah, I just feel like (laughs) that one you might not want. We already have Julie Power, who makes a rainbow when she flies. And they decided she was queer eventually. (laughs) 
But when she debuted as part of Power Pack, she was like a child, so she hadn't really been established either. Right. I think someone was like, that would be cute. What if she was queer and was the rainbow flying girl? And then Carolina <laughs> Dean is also a rainbow. So I feel like... They got that covered. We don't need more queer rainbow heroes. Yes. I just... A rainbow is their inborn power. Oh, maybe a secondary mutation, as uh, Cecilia Reyes notes in one of the it's issues true. that I read today. Yeah, no, I completely thought that they had just brought him back and retconned him as uh, a gay man. And then when I was reading the, the stuff uh, from the vault and I saw <laughs> that he was like vaguely in a uh, kind of in like a 50 to 100 year, whatever, how much time they were there relationship with X23, I was like, I think it was like several hundreds by the end. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, oh, he's bisexual. That's also a cool twist. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Then I realized, no, Then no, you no. remembered that he has a rainbow power. It's yes. been a minute since you were reading this book as a kid. Well, because he died in 2001 and I get over things really quickly. So <laughs> You haven't spent the last 20 years like no. weeping over the death, but <laughs> he is the character that you definitely wanted to talk about when I first broached being on the show. Yeah. Gen X, I think, in a lot of ways, was your jumping on point into the franchise. So we covered this a little bit on the Monet episode, which you guest starred in as the secret bonus guest hidden inside the episode. <laughs> it was like a Foreman content joke about Monet. <laughs> but in case people haven't heard that, or just in case you want to go a little longer, why don't you... Tell the listeners a little bit about your path to the X-Men. Uh, the X-Men, as I understand it, play a pretty significant role in Admissions, your memoir coming up. Yeah, there's there's some good X-Men uh, bits in there. Mostly because, like, honestly, um, when I was sort of forming my idea of what boarding school was and what boarding school was going to be, because I... So, long story short, I had been going up to a boarding school campus in Connecticut, the Taft School. I've been going up there since I was like two because my dad uh, had gone there in the, in the 70s and graduated. And so we always went up for his uh, reunions and just alumni campus stuff. Mm -hmm. I was always interested in boarding school because it was just there, always there present in my life. But I did not know a lot about like sort of the, the realism of what boarding school was and a lot of what was informing me about what that experience was going to be was the X-Men. I really, <laughs> I put a lot of stock in the fact that kids in literature uh, and on a lot of our media, like the kids who go to boarding schools are very special, either have some sort of like power or something going on with them that makes them unique and different from the rest of society. I really focused on that fantastical aspect of it. And so when my dad started reading Gen X, because my dad was the comic book reader in our house, and he would bring issues back every Wednesday from his pull list, and I saw Gen X. I already knew about X-Men, liked X-Men, played X-Men Pretend on the playground in elementary school. But Gen X was great because it was about kids more, like, more close to my age, in right. middle school at least. So there was that aspect that I could relate to a little bit more. So I read a lot of Gen X, basically, long story short, is what I'm saying. And it really helped me form what I thought boarding school was going to be like. That was not the case, um, as I later found <laughs> out. <laughs> the thing that's interesting about the Xavier School, or in this case, the Massachusetts Academy branch of Xavier School, is that really until the Morrison era, when taking a page out of the movie, Morrison had there be hundreds of students at the school. Right. It wasn't really a school ever. It was more like <laughs> a big house that 
six or seven people lived in, right? And like that's your student. You know, the New Mutants. You look at it, and it's like, hmm, the students at this school are Sam, Meadow, <laughs> Sean, Danny, Rain. It's like not that many people. Like you could name them all on one or two hands at a time. Right. For a minute, it was just Kitty Pride. <laughs> you know. Yeah, I mean, in a way that is like that's almost a little bit similar to the boarding school experience. I think I should clarify if you're like if you're black is what you're right. saying, it, right? Yes. Yeah. Well, and I think it goes, it goes, yeah, it goes two ways because like I can to this day tell you who all the black kids were, not only in my class but in the class ahead of me and in the class behind me, simply because there were so few of us. So like to me, being able to name the uh, let's say quote unquote special kids, the mutant a, kids. The mutant kids at a school is very normal to me. <laughs> In the late stage of Gen X, that is what the book becomes. Because right. Adrian Frost, Emma's eviler sister, takes over management of the school and admits all these human flat scan students yes. to make <laughs> yes. money. And so the Gen X kids in the back fourth, I would say, of the book, there's this whole thing where we can't talk about who we really it turns into kind of x-men evolution sort of you know like i think that was clever but it also it absolutely creates what you're talking about which is that now gen (laughs) x are the minority kids at the school talking to each other sort of in private yes and like also what i should say about gen x is that it was the boarding school setting that i tended to like graft onto in stuff that i was reading and also it was like one of the few like sort of fantasy sci-fi things that I was reading that had two black kids there that were like important characters yeah important characters and close to me in age that I could relate to them so you had Monet who we already discussed and then we also had Everett there as well and then there were other students of because well Jubilee yeah Jubilee Jubilee's Chinese American yeah and then Angelo Skin is Latino right and then you have Mondo, briefly, who I think is maybe Polynesian? Yes. Someday for the Mondo episode, I'll have to do the reading. All I remember is that he was like a clone, wasn't the real Mondo, and like, don't worry about it, Cordelia Frost (laughs) and stuff. But I believe Mondo is maybe like a Pacific Islander or something? I'm looking him up now because it's funny. Now I'm like, I have to check. He, okay, so I was revisiting some of the Gen X issues this morning um, and just sort of like flipping through them, and it's funny. I saw him, because I'm looking at him now on Google, Saw him, did not recognize him because he is like only there. Like, he's not a super important character. He is Samoan. You were. You okay. Were I was like, the, I feel yes. like we're in the <laughs> AAPI realm, but I can't yes. remember exactly where. Um, and then he emigrates to Krakoa, which we'll get to. Right. He's there now. Yeah. We'll yes. get there. Everybody's, everybody's <laughs> back. Um, no, yeah, actually, Florida. Chamber and Mondo got to be on the New Mutants team in the first arc of New Mutants on Krakoa. They didn't get to do much, but it was mm-hmm. sort of like, because it's like Moonstar and Wolfsbane and Cannonball and Sunspot and these two guys, they're here because like they're all the same age. So why not? You know, I mean, that was great. I mean, sorry, not to jump ahead, but it was really nice to see that they had brought Everett back and then to see that he actually got to like the issue. One of the issues I read was like completely from his point of view. Yeah. It was like they didn't just bring him back just to like say that we did this and we're like correcting some sort of wrong that happened right and he's gonna sit in the background though you know yeah. right no, no it's actually he's back this issue is 100 from his perspective yeah and is by the architect of the entire line and we're putting him on the new x-men team so it's been quite the glow up for Everett yes. thomas no like clearly jonathan hickman cares about him and i thought i was the only person who did <laughs> 
Jonathan Hickman has said that he is a big Gen X fan. Okay. And I think that if you are a big Gen X fan, like Monet is one of his top five favorite characters. Right. So you see the result of that in that (laughs) some of these characters are getting a push. Emma and Banshee are interacting again on panel for the first time, like, since Gen X. (laughs) You see little bits and pieces of your, like, someone who likes Gen X is in that room. You know what I mean? Right. (laughs) Sink is the most obvious example of it, though, because this is a character that you've literally only ever heard of if you read Gen X. Because he was introduced in Phalanx Covenant, immediately pivots to Gen X, is in Gen X, and then dies in Gen X at the end of Gen X, and then was dead. Until now. Yeah, literally every time it's 1994 <laughs> to 2001, I believe. So yeah, he didn't even exactly. make it like a decade. <laughs> it was a brief run. Yeah. It was not unlike Doug Ramsey. Mm-hmm. He's sort of the one who dies. What's different, though, is that in the Gen X team, Everett is sort of more of a cannonballer mirage type character. He is presented as potentially one of the next great leaders of mutant kind. It's not like Doug, where, like, Doug dies because Doug had a useless power for combat. (laughs) Right. And was becoming a liability in plotting, is my understanding. It's like, (laughs) what can we do that Doug can participate in? And fans found him annoying because he wasn't cool. So they would Mm -hmm. write in, like, Cypher's so boring. With Sync, Sync is actually, I mean... When you're on a team with Monet, Monet is going to be the most powerful person on the team. That's just how that works. But he's up there. And the thing about him is he's sort of like an upgrade on Rogue, right? So if you're not familiar with what this character's power is, he can put himself in sync with other mutants initially. In Gen X, it's just mutants. That has changed in the recent, recent stuff. But initially, it was just mutants. He can basically put his aura out there, sense other mutants genetic codes and put himself in sync with them which then gives him their powers dubious science dubious science well like all things x-men <laughs> yes. the mutagenic field or whatever it's like right. what the fuck does that mean <laughs> so it's like rogue in that sense but he chooses who he's syncing with and he doesn't have to touch you so he can do mm-hmm. it remotely which is very useful in a fight like rogue has to get up close rogue's trade-off is that she can also like drain people like a vampire their life force yeah. yeah in a way that he can't do and because of the ms marvel powers that she stole she had other stuff she was flying she was super strong etc he just has this but the thing that's really impressive about him is he pushes powers instinctively beyond what other people can do. So, like, when mm. he syncs with Chamber, who is telekinetic, he can fly, even though Chamber can't fly. Yeah. But because Chamber theoretically could someday learn to fly, Sync figures out how to do it almost instinctively. Yeah, I mean, that's some of my favorite. I think that sort of uh, aspect of power is, like, to me, that just reminds me of the whole thing with, like, the Animorphs, where I don't know if you remember, like, they sometimes could do that, too, because when they absorbed powers, it was like, they're absorbing the baseline DNA, so it's yeah. whatever the best, what it's like, whatever the best version of, like, you could be, that's what I'm turning into. Which, right. like, which is sort of akin to, like, what Everett's doing. I don't know why yeah. I just thought of that, but it's No, like, no, it's but it's, similar. it is very similar. It also has a variety of effects that he doesn't necessarily seem to always choose. Yeah. Like, so sometimes he mimics the power, literally just mimics it, can do it. Other times his aura takes on the power, the rainbow aura, in ways that are sort of subjective. Like when he syncs with Penance, who has superhumanly strong skin, his aura becomes 
force field. Yet. Yeah. Like it protects him. Or when he sinks with Hemingway, the G Nation enemy, when they're fighting G Nation, Hemingway is super strong. So Everett sinks with him and then basically like uses the aura like an arm and just punches him out of the room, you know? And I'm wondering like when, because I feel like not a lot of this was explored in Gen X. and a lot, Yeah, like, and a lot of what we're seeing, a lot of what we're talking about now is like sort of hinted at in some of the issues of the Krakoa stuff that I was reading by Cecilia Reyes. It's funny because basically I connected with Everett more so when I was in high school and I was doing like all of this X-Men RP stuff. Right, you were role-playing online in X-Men yes. World. Oh, so sorry, yes. That's what's in admissions. That's what's. Yeah. That's what. There's going to be tidbits about admissions. Is my yes. understanding. I haven't had a chance to read it yet. Yes, I was doing a lot of live, live journal based RP games uh, with the X Men, and one of the things that I was always playing with with Everett's powers because I would do um, power swap games. So you know, you're giving Cyclops rogues powers or whatever. So I liked Everett's power set, and I would give them to people. And one of the things that I was clashed with with the moderators was how far his powers could go. Because mm-hmm. I was starting to play a little bit with, like, the different ways that the aura could be used. And it really would piss some people off because they would be like, oh, you're trying to marry Suet or you're trying, to, which was a term we used far much more commonly back then. <laughs> yeah. Well, the sexism of it was not yes. really a conversation anyone was having back then. So we just used it. Yeah. Indiscriminately, kind of. Exactly. But so, yeah, I, people would get mad at me because they would think I was, like, doing power grabs or whatever. And I was like, no, I really think that this is something that could be done, like, expanding the way that his powers work. Right. I'm not going god mode. I'm just trying yes. to, like, you know, <laughs> expose. I actually, so I didn't do that much X-Men role play. Mm-hmm. I do have a sorted role playing past of my own, but not on Live Journal. I was in mushes and stuff like multiple. Oh. <laughs> I forget what it stands for. The old people listening, like <laughs> by old, I mean our age and older. Right. We'll probably remember. And I do feel the need to say, because in the Sunspot episode, I did yet again, my young people won't remember this, but the <laughs> Avengers didn't used to be a big brand. And one of the younger listeners in the Discord was just like, I know that. The people listening to your show know that. And I was <laughs> like, you know what? That's fair. Some young people do know these things. I will say that at this point, the podcast is up to about 5,000 listens a week which uh, is cool. Welcome Mm -hmm. to all of you who are joining us more and more each week. But I'm not going to assume that every Gen Z kid listening has even heard of LiveJournal. And certainly, whether or not they've heard of Mush, Mud, Mock, Mocks, like whatever you want to call it. These were chat rooms basically on DOS via a Telnet client. (laughs) Right. You logged on to Prodigy and were like tight. Yeah, you would log into your character bit and then it was all text-based and you would just sort of like tabletop role play with people online, basically. And so I did do X-Men there a little bit, like very briefly. And as is my want, I used a female character no one had ever done anything with. Love love to see it. That's the best way to play. (laughs) Right. So I played Tarot for a minute. Oh. From the Hellions. Yes. And she is one like that where her powers were really cool, but because she was a Hellion, not a new mutant, and then the Hellions all died, that's where Gen X comes from, right? Right. It never was explored in depth because it was like she could animate any of the images on these tarot cards. Mm. She uses the cards because she likes to, though. It's a gimmick. So she actually could animate any work of art. Yeah. Really any 2D image, you know? And it was never, like, they never went there because she was too committed to the bit. <laughs> but like, there's so much you could do with the power if she wanted to expand. Wait, that. 
it's basically Gambit's whole situation, too, where it's, like, people sometimes, even in the RP games, they would get mad at you if he, like, used his power with anything other than cards. Because right, it's cards... like, no, he just does that because yes. it's a gimmick. He doesn't right. actually, <laughs> to the point where the Children of the Atom, you should actually, you should read Children of the Atom. It's Vida okay. miniseries that is concluding this month, I believe, okay. the sixth issue. It's these new characters. I'm not going to spoil anything because it's cool, but there's a new character who's an Afro-Latina lesbian character named Carmen who patterns herself after Gambit and calls herself gimmick. I thought that was a funny <laughs> choice because, like, it is literally, like, that's just a gimmick. Right. He's just doing that because it's cool. Teeny Howard actually, in the most recent issue of Excalibur, had him supercharge a train in Otherworld, which was <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Betsy was like, oh, my God, you are a crazy person. He's like, Twitter teleports the Gambit Express. <laughs> It was great. Because he should be charging all kinds of shit. Yeah, it does not make sense to go fight a battle with cards. That's, like, not a thing. He's just doing that for funsies. So, like, he should, you know, be charging everything. Anyway. Anyway, yes. So, long way around. Yeah, but no, so that's the thing with Everett. I mean, I was looking at, when I was writing the character file, I did, like, a glance at the Marvel Wiki, because I always check a couple different sources to make sure I didn't, like, miss the story, right? I checked on CaddyXman.net, I checked the Marvel Wiki, and if I, like, forgot something, I'm like, shit, let me slot that in there. I checked the Travis Starnes reading order, the complete reading order, CMRO, or whatever it is. Shout out to Travis Starnes. <laughs> you the only reason I can do this podcast. But so the thing I noticed was that in his, like, handbook, we talked about these in the Monet episode, actually, like, the right. ratings of, like, you oh, know, yeah. intelligence, strength, speed, or whatever. It's really bad. <laughs> so he has a two in everything, which is normal, standard, except yeah. for intelligence, where he has, has a three. three. They all, though, then have a blue bar that extends to seven, which is the maximum, because that's his potential using his mimicry power. He can actually do anything if he is smart enough to apply his power correctly to the situation. So that's very cool because it's the kind of power that requires him to think. Right. Like a common complaint that's leveled at Darwin, for example, who (laughs) is very, very powerful and who, by the way, factors into the vault with think in this story is that his power is subconscious it just Mm -hmm. activates on his behalf to save his life right right this is a power you really have to actively choose and i will note that in the vault we saw darwin kind of actively using powers too so it seems like maybe hickman is shifting that character slightly also evolution yeah so to speak (laughs) but yeah so that's his power it has a very cool aura effect the way Bocciolo drew it in particular is really sort of interesting. It looks almost solid. Yes. Like it's sort of in these weird shapes. Like it doesn't just radiate out. It's very painterly, you mm-hmm. know? And it was like almost all shown in profile or like, I don't know what you call it, like profile or like two thirds. Yeah. Usually on the side of his face. And I really liked the art, not so much in the Krakoa issues, but like more so in like the new X-Men stuff. I thought it was really good. Oh, well, Pepe Larath is one of the best artists in the game right now so gotcha <laughs> he's just a very exciting person to have on an x-men flagship title i'm, I'm really <laughs> jazzed because that first issue sync doesn't do a ton because they're right. establishing the whole thing but the little bits you get are cool yes you get the vibe of what his role is going to be on the team because initially when they announced the roster i was like him and rogue together that's like a lot of power stealing right but it's an air in the spare situation 
also, like, I think Rogue is mostly going to be flying around being Supergirl in this, as right. opposed to doing a lot of... Because, you know, power stealing for her is a whole headache, whereas he could just grab them mm-hmm. out of the air. And as you noted, Cecilia Reyes has a data page in one of the X-Men issues about his return, using him as the example of a process that she has observed in the Krakoan Resurrections. Mm-hmm. It's not universal, but a lot of the time when a mutant is put into a fresh version of their body, like it's fully been regenerated from their DNA, but it's their advanced mind that has trained in the use of their powers and gets put into a body with all this raw potential, yeah. often their power unexpectedly levels up. Yes. That's a great thing to toss out there for any character they might want to bring back because it allows the Hellions, for example, you bring back a character like Tara or Roulette and you can have them be more on the level of their New Mutants peers, even though they've been dead since 1991 or whatever. Yes. Similarly here, this level up for Sync puts him on a more equal playing field with characters like Monet, who graduated to the X-Men long ago while he was dead. It basically rushes in the power development that he hasn't had because the character hasn't been used in a long time. And what his particular level ups are, are that he no longer has an active or dormancy. He doesn't have to turn the power on. It's always on and he's always sensing. The different auras, yeah. And can just grab them. And then also, much to his surprise, when they get into the vault, he can mimic the powers of the children of the vault, who are not mutants. Not, yeah. So much like Rogue, who has always been able to steal any power, Carol Danvers was not a mutant when she <laughs> stole those powers, he can now mimic other kinds of superhumans, which is key because in the age of Krakoa, most of the time we're not fighting other mutants. We're fighting threats of other kinds. Yes. So he needs to be able to mimic, like, God forbid, an inhuman, but some, you know, <laughs> aliens, whatever's yes. coming at us, he needs to be able to do As it. I was introduced, now I have to, like, read more, because, like, apparently they gotta go fight some gambling planet or something. I love the evil Vegas planet. <laughs> someone, I forget who it was, someone on Twitter pointed out, or no, I think it was, um, I think it was Khaled, who was written in here before, Dr. Hunty Chase. He uh, pointed out that it's very Sailor Moon because they did the preview of the next issue and it's like the gambling planet and someone's like, mm-hmm. well, that didn't work. And the next gambler's like, let me throw my thing at him. And it's like, <laughs> it's like, it's kind of like, you know, Magical Girl or Super Sentai or like one of those where it's like they're sending their, like Rita Repulse yes. is sending her next thing to see <laughs> the next what play, The next Clay character down. <laughs> exactly. And I think that that's a great kind of format to get us into this new team and to get like at least you know yeah. just a couple issues maybe but like i like it for the growing pains because like i need to like we need to know like how these people are going to work together like i've never the idea of like everett thomas talking to gene gray is like very wild strange. yeah yes. <laughs> yeah well it's a crazy team i mean i really like the choices and i think that we're going to get more insight i mean jerry has said jerry duggan who's writing mm-hmm. it has said that each issue after the first one, we're going to get maybe, I don't know if it's actually every issue, but we're going to, over the course of it, get to see the speeches that each of them gave in the telepathic conference when they were elected. Okay. So we'll get to see why they were chosen, what they said, and I'm interested to see what Everett says, because I assume he's going to talk about the vault. Yes. Which 
that's the other thing that really, I mean, it's a really clever plot because not only have his powers been boosted to such a level that it's like he never died because he's boosted alongside all of his friends, but also he's now older than all of his friends, subjectively. Right. You know, because the question of like, how old did they bring back Everett? It's like, it doesn't matter. Don't worry about character ages. He's the same age as the rest of Jet X. And now it doesn't matter because he's lived for hundreds of years in the vault. So. Yes, we fixed that. We fixed it. <laughs> he's an adult. He's the same age as everyone. Don't worry about it. I love a don't worry about it that's on the page like that and thought through in like a clever way. So you were reading Gen X and you were RPing and yes. Everett obviously was a character who appealed because he was even more so than Monet, who we've we talked about this in the Monet episode. She's a very specific kind of black character in that she's not American. She's from this very cosmopolitan, wealthy European background. This is just an African-American character. Yep. This was just okay, I have the girl, like, I have Monet, right. that's set. I guess Everett is, like, the next trip. Like, literally, that's what it was, because that was the options. He's just from St. Louis. Yeah. Didn't know anything about St. Louis. Like, had no real, like, emotional follow-through to him, really. There was nothing that connected us, mm-hmm. aside from the fact that he was just another Black character for me to to meet, for me to obsess over. So few. <laughs> yeah, the, sometimes that goes a really long way because, again, when there are only like four of them and you're like, does Bishop count? Like, then it becomes right. <laughs> really complicated. And honestly, like, Bishop wasn't going to work for me. Anything time travel confused me. Yeah, you were not a time travel fan. No, no, no. Like, unless it was like its own thing, I couldn't deal with time travel, like, on top of other things going on. Right. So I needed sliders. Sliders was like, focused on time and dimension travel you love a sliders moment yeah yes. I do remember that but like not connected with other things no you just want them just to be sliding you're like no yes. sliders in my other <laughs> things right um but yeah no so it was like yeah bishop could have counted but no well i bring that up only because we talked about it in the bling episode that i did with steph williams because a lot of people aren't aware that bishop is an aboriginal australian character as opposed to an african-american right. character I actually, a listener wrote in and we had an interesting conversation about an Australian listener because Mm -hmm. I was just sort of like, I don't know enough about this to like say, but like, I know that ethnically speaking, it's different from being of African descent, Yes. but the word black is used in Australia. So it's one of those very complicated things. And that's what Steph and I were trying to sort of sort out. I think that Bishop is just in that sort of nebulous, confusing zone where the white people who wrote the character didn't know the difference. That too. That also. Well, because it was like he's Storm's <laughs> grandson, except not. Well, it's like, like not if they're not if they're from two different. Not if he's only Aboriginal no. Australian, right? Yeah. Right. So <laughs> they'll have to figure that out at some point. But in the meantime, I'm glad we have the character Manifold, who is an Aboriginal Australian character who is very informed by the culture and. <laughs> We know what's going on right. on the page, as opposed to with Bishop, where it was just sort of like, uh, what's going It was just sort of to tie him to Gateway, I think. Yeah. And then Monet is all tied to Gateway. Yes. I mean, Monet was also, as we talked about before, that was another one where I was like, I mean, I'm saying she's black. Me in my house in New Jersey. The people writing. Sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The comic book may have may have had different things to say. But now we've gotten that sorted out. <laughs> we've gotten that sorted out now for sure. But that's all to say that while Bishop or Monet and even Sunspot Mm -hmm. might be seen as sort of complicated racially, like, are they black characters? This was a character that was completely unambiguous. He's just a black African-American kid from St. Louis. It's like very straightforward. Yeah. 
In fact, when he first appears in Phalanx Covenant, which is a franchise-wide event that is about the Phalanx, you don't have to worry about them. They're like the Borg. Resistance is futile. They will assimilate you. Mm -hmm. They are trying to hunt down all of these newly manifested mutants so that they can kill the next generation of X-Men before the next generation of X-Men begin. And then they're all moved after that. Like the ones, the kids that are saved, Everett included, they're all moved yeah. over to Massachusetts. Yes. So none of these kids are at Xavier's yet. It's like right. Emma and Banshee go around to recruit them, but they're being hunted by the phalanx in the meanwhile. In the original story, which is drawn by Andy Kubert and written by Fabian Misiesa, the character had already been created by Scott Lobdell, is my understanding. But like mm -hmm. they were introduced in this Phalanx Covenant crossover. As initially presented in that story, he's drawn as like a very urban character. An urban youth, one might say. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> in a way that was really not the way the character developed over time. Yeah. He's wearing yeah. like a jersey and a sideways baseball cap, and <laughs> he's like very buff. It's uh, like a very 1993 in America. What can I tell you? Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> it's very much a like he's introduced. I'm gonna just send you the panel if you don't remember this. Yeah, it's wild. He's introduced with like cops pointing a gun at him Jeez. in this outfit. Uh. He's being hunted by the phalanx and he sinks. <laughs> I know she just started laughing. <laughs> he sinks instinctively with Banshee and like Sonic screams everything. And so the cops show up because they're like, what's going on, Thomas? Except it says they are frightened. They always knew yeah. Everett Thomas is a good kid, a straight A student, the whole works. But then things started happening odd things and all they know is that Everett always seemed to be at the center of it they don't know he's a mutant if the truth be told he barely knows he's one himself he only knows he's different and what's more he enjoys it this panel this panel I just have to say says more about the way like white people see <laughs> like not only just like see black men in general but like he's supposed to be like 16 yes 15 16 yeah this is a fully grown man in this that man is 35 if he's a dick <laughs> it looks like a luke cage story yes it, it 100 does partly that's the 90s like everyone was hyper muscled in that 90s moment completely but the second botulist starts drawing them in gen x they look like teenagers yes and everett doesn't look anything like this no at all no, no no no. this is not the effort that i remember from my childhood i mean his arms are the same size as the cop's arms who are ostensibly full-grown men <laughs> this is wild but that's part of what i think is interesting is that when he's introduced he's very much this stereotypical white vision of yes black masculinity but then as the actual gen x book starts up he is much more of a reader proxy than you would necessarily anticipate. He's sort mm -hmm. of the normal one. I would say he and Husk are kind of like the most normal characters on the team. Yes, because not only, obviously, they have their fair share of like typical X-Men drama, but they also don't have like sort of the familial personal drama that a lot of the other ones have, uh, which is like an interesting choice. Because like, I mean, just based on that panel where he's introduced, you would definitely expect the people who uh, created and introduced that panel to be like, okay, he's going to come from a broken home. Right. 
we're going to have a lot of, like, parental drama going on here. Right. Maybe he doesn't have a dad. Like, all of that stuff. And then to have him be one of the more normal ones is actually kind of interesting, like, an interesting and progressive choice for the era. Yeah, well, much like having Monet be, like, the rich bitch and she's not the white girl. Like, there were a couple interesting choices made with this team. Husk is the other sort of normal one because she's used to the abnormal. Mm -hmm. Because Cannonball is her brother, because she has mutant siblings... She's just kind of like, well, here I am. Like, you know, <laughs> I'm at Xavier's finally, you know. There's no drama except insofar as like her mom might get sick or like they're yeah. poor on the farm back home. But it's not I was on the streets or what, you know, in the way that X-Men characters often are. Yeah. I think that that's important because I think it's the reason why he's chosen to die mm -hmm. toward the end of the book. It is in that respect that he is quite like Doug Ramsey. Right. Who is very much like a normal kid from the suburbs in the way that Kitty Pride also was. Eventually, over the course of Gen X, we learn that his parents are successful. Yes. Professional people. They have good careers. And they have adopted, like he's their biological son, but they have right. also adopted like a united color is a Benetton of foster children who are like all different races. So he grew up in this like very multicultural household and he has this maturity to him that the other characters don't have. Because if you look at Gen X, it's like Jubilee, who's Jubilee, like, yeah. you know, the wacky one, like zany <laughs> in that way. Monet, who is mean. Right. Skin, who is literally a gangbanger from LA. Like he's the character who's from, he's the urban street character i guess they they realized they couldn't do that twice yeah i think they realized they couldn't have two right yeah chamber who's older than the others but is like a goth freakazoid with a star in his <laughs> chest so like not the most relatable necessarily character except perhaps emotionally if you're also an emo kid right and then penance who can't talk so like it's it's a sort of a weird bunch of characters and he is the one who is the most accessible i think to the reader except insofar as he's black which is asking the white readership primarily of these comics to go there and i think that's cool i think it's similar a little bit to claremont pushing kitty's jewishness to the forefront mm -hmm. a lot in the 80s and saying like if you're reading this and you don't know anything about jews time to learn you know <laughs> or like time to identify with this character who maybe you have preconceived notions about and i think right. that is similarly sort of what's going on here and why he's not the character in that first panel Yes. Because I think that that character would have been a very different character. And again, the writing, if you look at the, di the everything Fabian wrote, it's the same character. Like the, the yes. descriptions talk about how he's this great student. The cops don't think of him as a troublemaker. That's why they're so frightened, you know, yada, yada, yada. Mm -hmm. And I think Andy Kubert's great. It's just, this is not. It's not. The... It's very of the time, let's say. No, completely. I mean, it's, God, I, looking at this is actually weird. Like to think that they had this character in the chamber, because I had forgotten that he is from St. Louis. To think that they had this character in the chamber from like 2014 until the decision was made to bring him back is really interesting. Specifically, like when stuff started going, like when Ferguson happened, essentially, they had in their back pocket, essentially, they did have this character that they could have brought back at any time to sort of be a rep like the representative or to do like something around that. I don't really know what Marvel or what the X-Men, I guess, specifically have done in terms of like Black Lives Matter. But it's just interesting to think that this character was there the whole time. And like, even that didn't prompt a resurrection. 
Yeah, well, I think that a lot of people weren't aware of him because yeah. he's been dead for such a long time and you really had to care about this tertiary title. Right. <laughs> you know, because it wasn't even X-Factor or X-Force. Like, Gen X was this very odd book. It mm. was popular. Yes. But it was a weird book and it was more like Excalibur, I would say. It was like, if you were one of the people who read this book, like, you went to the store and got this book. It wasn't like yeah. <laughs> just one of the ones that you naturally had to read. It's funny that you say that only because this was also the only... I think this was the only X book that was coming. Well, Deadpool. This and Deadpool were like the only two X-Men related books that were regularly coming into our house. Because my dad, he read everything Spider-Man. He read Mm -hmm. a lot of Hulk. He read like some Avengers stuff, but not a lot of X-Men. And so to know that this wasn't really crossing over with a lot of the other books makes a lot of sense. Because there just like wasn't that much that he would have had to keep up with. Right. It's basically like every now and then Emma and Sean will talk about something else that's happening in the other books. Yeah. But we're in Massachusetts, honey. Like, we're not even in New York. (laughs) They had very self-contained plots, is I guess what I was saying. Yeah. That's why it's like Excalibur. They're in England. They're doing their own thing. They can pop up for a Phalanx Covenant or whatever, but they don't usually, and you don't need them to be there. And if you're reading that book, you don't really need to be reading all of the other books. Yeah, it it was a much simpler time. I mean, it was just so much easier to keep up with stuff. That's why I'm so behind now, because obviously now Marvel has realized that and they were making that correction to make it easier for people to jump back in to X-Men. But for a while, it was hard. (laughs) Oh, impossible. The Utopia era stuff, like after the Decimate, the idea that you could follow any of that stuff easily, it was just wild. It was a truly wild time for about 10 years. I think Hickman had a vision for revamping the franchise that has been very successful obviously but in part because it was a soft reboot that lets you just jump on yeah do you not know anything that's happened in the x-men in the last 10 years great if it's important we'll tell you otherwise don't worry about it you know this is an example of that because i could send you these new issues and you haven't read House of X, Powers of Ten, right? No, but I ju- I was able to jump right in with like everything you sent me. Right. I said, like, they're on a new mutant nation called Krakoa on the old island from Giant Size X-Men, and they can come back to life now. That's all you really need to know. Yeah. And I you're got like, it. I'm in. Got it. Great. <laughs> cool. And I think that that was the real genius of it. They also have a checklist in the back that tells you exactly what order to read them all in if you want to read everything. And they put it out in a trade paperback format now that collects all the different books together if you want that. Oh. You can buy the Dawn of X trades, which take you from House of X all the way to Ten of Swords, which is its own hardcover. And then after Ten of Swords, it's Reign of X. And then you can buy Reign of X Volume 1, Volume 2, Volume 3. And you could just buy the entire X-Men line now in trades, which I think is really smart. So smart. I mean, wild that they've never done that before. As far as I know. Truly. Apart from like events and things, you know, but like, why isn't this just the way it's done all the time? The comics industry needs to modernize on many fronts. Yeah. (laughs) And I think that this is definitely a step in the right direction. I'm excited for, I don't really buy trades that much anymore, but I love Mm -hmm. a hardcover. And so when they have Dawn of X in like, two or three omnis or whatever i'm in well so i really enjoyed that's the thing like i enjoyed all of the issues that you sent me and i definitely have questions about this new x-men team and i would like to know like where it goes like i said everett and Jean gray on the same team like what is the what is that what's happening in the preview pages for issue two they're like floating together meditating telekinetically and there's no dialogue boxes yet but i'm like i need to know what they're talking about great bizarre 
I mean, that's amazing. And it's like, but yeah, I will wait until it's all been gathered so that I can like sit down and read it at once. Because I think what's happened is that my brain used to be wired very obsessively. Yeah. And so it was very easy for me to like go and like just, I read this every month and I must find out immediately like what happens because I am at the same time reading and then adding to my knowledge for the other shit involved in the fandom that I'm doing, whether it's like fan fiction or role playing or whatever. I'm now 34 and I don't have that kind of time on my hands. Right, you're not doing that because you're really fucking busy. Yeah. Yes, um, and so it was just so much easier to fall away and I always want to jump back in, but I need those trades and I need them, like you said, to not just be collecting one series. I just need it to bounce from series to series until I get to the destination that they want me to get to. Yeah, so <laughs> what I'll tell you, so the new X-Men team is Reign of X, but okay. if you want to do this era, you can, and you can get them digitally in these trades also, which is cool. Amazing. You just start with House of X, Powers of Ten, which is the event that launches the new era. Mm -hmm. And then you just do Dawn of X, Volume One, and you follow it all the way through to the end, which is the event Ten of Swords. And then Reign of X starts. You read Reign of X, Volume One, and you just keep going. And they're just giving these mini eras their own titles. And then, like, I forget how it was like 15 volumes of Dawn of X or whatever. And it was like the full year and change. I have to assume that part of the reason that they're doing this or that they've realized that they have to do this is not only for their like loyal reader base or for even potential readers, but for the people who now that they have this whole cinematic and televised universe, they're going to want to use people who aren't just that original five that right, we got exactly. in the original ones. And so they need to make it easy for people to like actually yeah. go and figure out who the fuck these people they are. They need to make it easy for Kevin Feige to read these books, right? <laughs> I don't know that that's the, I don't know that that's why they're doing it this way, but it's a bonus. Right. If yes. I were Kevin Feige, I'd be thrilled. Because if I'm Kevin Feige and I'm figuring out like, what are we going to pull from for IP? I mean, and by Kevin Feige, I'm saying Kevin Feige and his entire team. I'm like, totally. using him in shorthand, we both know we work in the entertainment business. We know how many people <laughs> are involved in this. But whoever is writing notes for Kevin for like yes. the summit or whatever, <laughs> it's much easier if they can just read through all of Dawn of X and be like, hmm, well, they're doing interesting new stuff with Captain Britain. That's potentially an IP. Or like, ooh, this new Marauders team they have on a pirate ship. That's fun. Give me that. <laughs> it's Shadowcat as a pirate captain. Things like that, where you're like, this is naturally would lend itself to like a Disney Plus show or something. <laughs> yes. By getting the whole smorgasbord in order, you see how the pieces come together and you can dip in and out of each series without being like, I have to invest now in like all 12 issues of whatever that have come out before I know whether I like, you know, like, so yes. I think it's a good, it's a good way of handling it. I like reading the series straight through as well, but I like that there are now these different reading experiences that you can have and that are being provided to you through the collection. This is not an ad, though, as always. <laughs> if Marvel would like to sponsor this podcast, I will sell out in 10 seconds. So give me a call. <laughs> but in any case... Kudos to you guys. You're doing it well. You guys are doing it. <laughs> yes. It has never been easier. Because like when people ask me, how do I read the X-Men? And they want to know where to jump on and jumping on points. This has never been easier. Because my other ones, it's like well, here's all the different ways you can read the Claremont run, but like, here's the reading order sheet that you need to have. And like, <laughs> here's where the annuals fit in or like things like that. Like, no, 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 no. Just these little tiny trades. Right size. Each one collects like five issues and it just gives you the whole fucking thing. Yeah. Like someone asked on Twitter, they were like, I want to jump in and read the new X-Men. How do I do it? And I was like, literally, you buy House of X Powers of 10, then read Dawn of X trade one through however many there are, then read 10 of Swords, <laughs> then start Reign of X volume one. It has never been easier. 
Perfect. I mean, listen, I was away for a couple years before this started. Like, right. I kept up with what was happening. I read some of the Rosenberg Uncanny and some of the Bun Uncanny. But I was like, I had just been checked out since Inhumans stuff. Mm-hmm. I was just not feeling it. And it feels really good to be back in. And it's because it was so easy for me to jump back in. Particularly this era, if you have a grounding in the 70s and 80s material and in Grant Morrison's material, Mm -hmm. you're pretty set for this era. It helps if you've also read Mike Carey, but that's not super essential because the stuff like The Children of the Vault gets explained again for you in the new issues. I think what I also want from them, and I feel like other houses have been like good at doing this, maybe some other franchise in Marvel, but like with X-Men specifically, because so much of it has been like school-based and it is at its heart, I think sometimes at its best, it's about the students at the school, the teachers and those interpersonal relationships. I want to see them in more mediums, like beyond just like the panels and then beyond just like jumping straight to movies. Like, I just feel like YA. Well, there have been a couple novels. There have been a couple novels, yes. tie-in novels. And I think that the X-Men are much better suited for television than they I are agree. for film. New Mutants, Vita Ayala is writing a run on the New Mutants. That one is a little tricky because New Mutants has had a couple different writers since Krakoa mm-hmm. started. But Vita starts writing the book with issue 14 okay. and has just continued to the present. And they have reframed the book to be like basically Mirage and Karma and Magic and Warpath are like looking around and they're like, well, we're on this paradise island now and there's no structure and all of the kids have no guidance and (laughs) the people who used to run a school are like doing politics stuff now and running a country right so they like petition the council and they're like we'd like to start formally training these kids and so it's about them adjusting to being the teachers for this new generation and it's pretty cool i think you would dig it i'll yeah i'll check that out because like that's yeah YA and like what you're saying like tie-in novels I just feel like that's more where it belongs I would listen to an X-Men podcast like that's really well written and like not obviously not what we're doing here I, I got, mean, like no, a, you mean like an audio drama yes an audio yeah. drama yeah a scripted show essentially yeah I think that it would be so easy on Disney plus to do like an Academy X kind of show yes. You can do Gen X. Yeah, it's just the problem is it's tied to the right. time, right? So, But I, I don't think it has to be because it's like a double meaning, right? Like, I think mm-hmm. you could have a new book called Generation X that's about the generation on Krakoa and it would be fine. Right. Of course, Generation X initially was supposed to be a TV show. Remember that? No, I don't. Have you seen it? Have you seen the live wait. action TV movie of Gen this X? This sounds... Wait, you're not talking about Mutant X with John no, Shea as the Professor no. Xavier character. No, Mutant X is the one they got in trouble with because that was them trying to do an X-Men show without using any of the X-Men terms that Fox owned. Yep. <laughs> Gen X was a TV movie where Fanola Hughes plays the White Queen. She's great. Oh, in it, but I'm But it's seeing... a terrible, terrible TV movie that was like a failed pilot. Yeah, this It's live really action, bad. to be clear. No. Yeah. It introduces <laughs> some new characters like, they couldn't make Chamber or Skin, so they had right. to have characters who look more normal. Jubilee is played by a white woman. Oh, yikes. It's fully crazy. It's worth watching, though, because it's a real relic that is fascinating. But, no, I think that Disney, whatever you want to call it, New Mutants Academy X, Generation X, right. that's a Disney Plus show. Dazzler is a Disney Plus show. Yes. I think that Excalibur is a Disney Plus show. Do fucking Game of Thrones shit mm. in Otherworld with Captain Britain. You could do Captain Britain as a movie, but I feel like, speaking as a big Captain Britain fan, it's never been a <laughs> the brand. The biggest I know. <laughs> yeah, it's never been a brand that's really taken off in America. So right. 
if you're looking for a Hollywood film, I'd feel like maybe she's more at home on Disney Plus, and maybe mm-hmm. then that turns into an Excalibur show where like she and Pete Wisdom and whoever else from that cast, like please Brian and Megan on TV. <laughs> I would first of all Megan on the telly. That's all Megan's ever wanted. Right. <laughs> Megan doesn't want to be in the movies. Megan wants to be on a TV show. There's just so much that you can do with like the X Men properties and. X Factor Investigations, like the Peter David X Factor book. That's and that's obvious. that's my dream. Like for like a like a Madrox show, yeah, like yeah. a noir HBO sort of like spend the money on that that you spent on Perry Mason and like give me something <laughs> that I really want to watch about a private eye. <laughs> yeah, like do Madrox and Siren and Strong Guy and Monet. You could keep the cast like pretty small or whatever, and like you know. It's also funny to me that they haven't jumped back into that well because. They're doing so much race bending with like all of these other established characters, which is fine as long as you're doing it with intentionality and not just doing it to do it. However, there are hundreds of X-Men characters that you can just like pluck up and beef them up just a little bit. And then suddenly you have characters who are already there, who are already diverse, and you're just giving them finally a chance to shine. And it's not like they have to be unknown characters. No, because fans will know who they are. Yeah. If you put Monet or Frenzy or Sync on a team in a movie, it's like Monica Rambeau. Right. The real heads already knew. And now all of the MCU people who don't read comics are like, she's awesome. And that's all that they needed to do. And actually, if you go back, I know you're really fucking busy, but if you go back and listen to (laughs) these long episodes, I do say for people who can't do the long episodes, I gave it a try because I was skeptical. If you listen on 1.5 speed, this show is actually very brisk. And if your app like corrects the pitches, it actually doesn't sound weird. I thought it would sound weird. It doesn't. The only thing is that like the intro song becomes like expert, expert. But otherwise, it's okay. The character files do start to sound a little crazy because I already am talking fast in them. And so it does start to speed up a little bit there. But the regular conversations, I think, are very doable. When I re-listen, I'm now doing it in 1.5. And I'm like, oh, okay. Like This sounds pretty good. But the Dazzler episode that I did with Evan Narcisse, we actually had a long conversation about this, about race spending in the MCU. Our position was basically, well, we were talking about Dazzler because, of course, mm-hmm. like Dazzler was originally designed as a black woman. Yes. Was it Donna or Grace? Grace. Okay. It was Grace. Okay. That's Grace Jones and Donna Summer if you're listening and you're not like a disco fan. For very complicated reasons, the character became white mm-hmm. related to like media tie-ins. That never happened. So we were talking about it and we were saying Dazzler is a character that doing it with would feel very intentional and that would mm-hmm. make sense because it's like going back to the original design. But the problem even there that you would have is when the character in the comics is well established and is a white character, you're not really going to help diversity in the comic no. by making this suddenly the black ex-woman character because what you could have done is put Monet or Frenzy on that team Mm -hmm. and then that character would get a push in the comics in accordance with the push they're getting in the movies i'm pretty sure monica rambo is about to have a bigger role in the comics than she's had in 20 years it's printing money people know who she is now yeah so i am much more interested in the idea of monet or sync being on an x-men team than i am in the idea of casting rogue as a black woman because the rogue in the comics would still be white And that's why when there was a lot of talk during the Captain Marvel casting process of like, why don't they honor Carol and Monica by casting a black actress as Carol Danvers? I was like, I really don't think that would be a good idea because then Monica Rambeau is fucked. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. 
And you're never going to get the audience crossover. It's already hard to get movie people to read comics, but if Carol was a black character and there were all these black women who were really into Carol Danvers and they picked up the comic book and Carol was a white blonde lady. You'd be like, uh, I just got hoodwinked. Right. Like, <laughs> yeah. what's, you know, so I, I agree that when it's done intentionally, I think that it's a good thing to do. I just think that with this specific kind of cross media thing where the characters continue to exist in this primary form in the comic, mm-hmm. it's tricky because you can't Nick Fury everyone. No. No, because only Sam Jackson could Nick Fury, like, because there was a lot that went into that. (laughs) In the comic, they went out of their way to, like, retcon together this way to get rid of white Nick Fury and introduce his son, Nick Fury Jr., who was black. And it was this very (laughs) contrived thing they had to do because they realized, to the general public, this character is now indelibly Samuel L. Jackson, so we have to do something to fix that. Similarly, the Tessa Thompson Valkyrie is such a popular character that... They killed off the comics Valkyrie, who not that many people cared about, and they've introduced a new Valkyrie who's black, who's clearly based on the Tessa Thompson character. She's like a queer black Valkyrie, and you're like, okay, got it. You know, That's a case where, again, Valkyrie's not a character people especially care about. So you can do that. And I'm sorry if you're a big Valkyrie head, if you're like a big Brynhilda stan, I apologize for putting that out there. I'm just saying... (laughs) It's easier to do that than with a character. Rogue is one that I often see as an example because that kind of like poliosis streak is something that a lot mm. of black women have. So people are like, that would be cool. And I'm like, you're not going to get the payoff in the comic. And to the contrary, it would downplay other female characters with that power set who are black, who you could use instead. I would also want to hear just like such a good justification for like why you have chosen to make Rogue black. Like, what are you about to do like with her backstory that like yeah. really justifies the amount of change you're about to put on the pick? Because that's like always my Well, problem. part of it is that in Claremont's original script, when he introduced the character, he said to the artist, any ethnicity is fine. Okay. Okay. So she wasn't like created as white necessarily. It just defaulted. It's a real JK Rowling, Hermione. It defaulted. <laughs> Chris Claremont said, whatever you're feeling, she has a white streak in her hair. Like, you know, what? she's strong. <laughs> that was all that the note was given, you know? Right. Which is an unusually hands-off approach from Claremont. So mm-hmm. it's just one of those that people are like, ooh, this could have been so many, you know. So I get that. But I would, there are characters in the X-Men, like Storm is obvious, but there are characters like Monet, Sink, Maggot even. Like, I mean, yes. his power is goofy, but I think that a black South African mutant is an interesting character to have in the mutant metaphor. If you're going to do anything. If with you're going to do like, something yeah. with it. Right. I mean, his other problem, he has the sliding timescale problem where he would oh, have yeah, grown yeah. up under apartheid and now he didn't. So mm-hmm. it's the karma problem of like, <laughs> she's directly connected to the Vietnam War, except yeah. she's still now about 30. Right. So it's like, <laughs> it's problematic for figuring that out. But Sink, to go back to the subject of the episode, I think is a good option for any number of reasons. He has a visually cool power that you could do on screen. Mm -hmm. He doesn't require a complicated backstory or anything to introduce. He's just some guy who's like at the school. St. Louis, yeah. Yeah. And there are any number of young up and coming black stars that you could tap to play this character. So while... I don't think that the current X-Men office is thinking that much about the movies necessarily. Mm -hmm. If I'm Jonathan Hickman and I'm thinking, these movies do exist, they are going to happen eventually. You know who's a character who I've always liked who would be great in a movie? Sink. That is sort of a little bit how it feels when you look at this team of X-Men. It's a very movie-ready team of X-Men. Yes. Scott and Jean, Sunfire, who again, cool visual power, racially diverse character, character from another country, 
And then, like, Polaris helps connect. I mean, if you know Magneto, at least then right. you have, like, that sort of that tie it with connects Polaris. That in. Yeah. And Polaris, because she won the fan vote. That's how she got onto the team. <laughs> they did a cool little fan vote thing. And much to the surprise of certain people at Marvel, I think, she proved exponentially more popular than all the other characters who were in the poll. That's wild. Because of the show The Gifted, which a lot of young people were really into, that Amy Acker show. Oh. She was one of the main characters in that. Okay. Because the main characters were that family where, like, Amy Acker's the mom or whatever, and her kids are mutants. But then... Connor, I completely forgot that was an X-Men show. Right. It was not that well promoted. I think because, like, Fox was swinging down and selling their rights, right? Right. Mm -hmm. But it was basically a show with a bunch of obscure X-Men characters. And the most famous X-Men character who was in it at all was Polaris. It was, like, her and Blink and Warpath. That's... That's, I'm looking at this now. This is wild. I didn't, I. Yeah. Wait, John Proudstar is on this show? Don't you love when I'm finding things out real time? It, oh, that's what? right. I think it might have even been Thunderbird, not Warpath. Yeah. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was Thunderbird. Um, wow. I did not watch this show, to be clear. But like the main nope. characters were Fenris. It's a very weird, or like they made them Fenris's great grandkids or something. But it was like right. a very weird show. What I've seen of Bill it is Bill Compton cute. was the lead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was Amy Acker and the guy from True Blood were like the hmm. main characters. It was wild. Well, I guess I know what I'm doing. Jamie Chung played Blink. Yes. It was a wild, it was a wild cast. That girl from Screen Queens was the separate cuckoos. I wonder if Brian Singer just like had it in his contract from prior that his name just gets to go. I don't on. think he was involved. He's an EP. Oh. Yeah, no, then that's. He must have his. That's grandfathered on. from the old. Yeah. Ugh. That's an old deal. Thankfully, we never have to deal with that again now that Fox <laughs> doesn't have those rights anymore. Yes. But yeah, so I do think this team, it's like you got a Wolverine, but she's the young girl Wolverine that all the young kids like. Right. You got Sink, who could maybe be a love interest for her or maybe not. Actually, I think now is a good moment for me to do what will be a brief Cerebro character file on Everett Thomas because it's just Phalanx Covenant, Gen X, and then like three <laughs> issues from the last two years. So Go for it. I will do that, and then we will come back. For more with Kendra James, we will talk about her favorite Everett storylines from back in the day. We'll talk about the new material, and then we will answer your questions. So stay tuned, and we'll be right back. X-Men, X-Men. Everett Thomas, sometimes called Ev, but best known by the codename Sync, was a major protagonist of the 90s series Generation X. Built around the pre-existing character of Jubilee and establishing a new class of students after the New Mutants graduated into X-Force. Created by Scott Lobdell and Chris Bocciolo, Everett has the power to sync with other mutants, copying their powers and often using them in inventive ways. His tragic death at the hands of the wicked Adrian Frost is the climax of Gen X as a book, and the character remained unused from 2001 to 2019. Finally resurrected on Krakoa, he has become more prominent than ever before, now one of the seven members of the new democratically elected Krakoan X-Men team. While he'd been previously designed in anticipation of Generation X, Everett actually debuts in 1994's X-Men 36 by Fabian Niciesa and Andy Kubert, part of the franchise-wide event Phalanx Covenant. A recently awakened mutant, he draws the attention of a techno-organic alien race called the Phalanx, think the Borg from Star Trek with a dash of Warlock from New Mutants, who are attempting to hunt down and eliminate the next generation of mutant kind. With the X-Men indisposed, retired member Banshee and unlikely ally Emma Frost, former White Queen of the Hellfire Club, attempt to rescue the teenagers targeted and bring them to Xavier's where they will be safer. 
They bring X-Men trainee member Jubilee and the prisoner Sabretooth with them to help. Everett manages to use his mutant power to sync with the other's powers, first copying Banshee's sonic scream and then syncing with Jubilee. Instinctively able to use her power on levels she's never managed before, Everett absolutely eradicates the Phalanx drones. He then joins up with this makeshift team for a rescue mission to recover four other captured teenage mutants. Paige Guthrie, a.k.a. Husk, René Sancroix, a.k.a. M, Clarice Ferguson, a.k.a. Blink, and a boy called only Angelo, a.k.a. Skin. He'll later get the name Angelo Espinosa in the Gen X book. Clarice sacrifices her life to save the rest by destroying the phalanx entity called Harvester, and the remaining characters pivot into the new book Generation X, where they're joined at Emma Frost Massachusetts Academy by two additional characters, Jonathan Starsmore, who takes the codename Chamber, and the mysterious mute creature Penance. Everett takes the codename Sink. Everett's power comes in handy during a crisis that Christmas, when a boy with physical deformities takes hostages at a school. The boy believes he's a mutant, but after Generation X prevents the villain's nanny and the orphan maker from capturing him, Everett realizes that his mutagenic aura is not picking up anything from the troubled young man. While he may have a mutation causing disfigurement, the boy is not an X-gene mutant. Shortly thereafter, Gen X travels to Manhattan and winds up tangling with the mutant terrorists called Gene Nation. The Gene Nationals kidnap Leech, one of the few Morlocks to survive the mutant massacre, who had been meeting with Emma Frost. Everett, Angelo, and Jubilee come to Emma and Leech's rescue, and Everett impressively sinks with the Gene National called Hemingway, borrowing his superhuman strength and using it against him. The team has several encounters over this early run with a recurring foe, M-Plate, an interdimensional vampire who drinks mutant bone marrow. It turns out he's actually Monet's brother, much to everyone's surprise, and while the team manages to defeat him again, he infects Everett with his marrow vampirism. M-Plate takes Everett home to St. Louis, controlling his thoughts in an effort to make him devour his own family. Here we learn a bit more about Ev's backstory. He was born in an upwardly mobile professional family, and in addition to Everett, their biological son, his parents have adopted several foster children of different ethnicities. This gave Everett an appreciation for people's differences, and he ended up pursuing the study of political science. Now he's tempted to drain and kill his little sister, but his parents manage to talk sense into him. He's eventually attacked by Gen X, but he overpowers them using their own powers until Monet forces him to sync with her. For some reason, this purges M-Plate's infection from his body. Then Onslaught happens. Don't worry about it. That leads into Operation Zero Tolerance, where Jubilee, Everett's best friend who has a crush on him, is kidnapped by the Super Sentinel Bastion. Again, don't worry about it. Meanwhile, the rest of Gen X is teleported to a raft in the middle of the sea by Black Tom Cassidy. But they're saved by Glorian, the Shaper of Dreams, and, um... Again, don't worry about it. This is where Scott Lobdell leaves the book, replaced first by fill-in writers and then by Larry Hama. Transported by Glorian to Los Angeles, the kids wind up right in the middle of an Operation Zero Tolerance Sentinel attack, and Sink confesses to Monet that he's afraid he's going to die before ever kissing a girl. Monet lays one on him, much to his surprise. When the Sentinels attack, Everett sinks with Monet to copy her invulnerability, and suddenly he realizes that Monet is actually two twin children inhabiting one teenage-presenting body, Please go to the Monet episode for more. This whole storyline is a lot. Everett pulls the twin girls, Nicole and Claudette Sancroix, from the wreckage after the fight. Back in Massachusetts, with Operation Zero Tolerance over, Everett blames himself for Monet splitting into the twin girls, thinking his power somehow did it. M-Plate suddenly attacks the Academy, and the twin girls merge with him physically, becoming a genderless tripartite entity called M-Plate. The wicked M-Plate plans to use an interdimensional machine called the Universal Amalgamator to merge all beings in the multiverse into one shared consciousness. It's very end of Evangelion, which had just come out, just putting that out there. 
M-plate takes Everett to the Universal Amalgamator, which is overseen by an immortal mutant, maybe an alien mutant? Unclear. Named Gaia. Gaia refuses to use her powers to activate the machine, so M-plate plans to force Everett to sync with Gaia and do it himself. Gen X arrives and defeats M-plate with the help of their former enemy, Dirtnap, who's able to split M-plate back into the three Suncross siblings. M-plate, that's regular M-plate, escapes as the Citadel begins crumbling around them, and Everett refuses to leave without Gaia, who's still trapped. Everett and Penance lead the rest of the team to rescue her, and Gaia shows them another way out, leading them back to the Massachusetts Academy. She and Penance run off, but Ev is accosted by Dorian and Weasel, two local human delinquents who've had previous run-ins with Gen X and resent them. They beat Everett nearly to death, as he has no one to sink with, and leave him comatose on the side of the road. Banshee finds Everett and takes him to the hospital, and after a few days of visits from his teammates, he's able to awaken himself by sinking with them. To everyone's surprise, he refuses to identify Dorian and Weasel as his attackers. His friends are afraid he's planning some private revenge, but he actually gives the two boys some money to fix their car, which had been destroyed because of its proximity to the Academy in an earlier issue. Everett explains to Jubilee that the cycle of hatred only breaks if someone chooses to be the bigger person. By the way, it turns out there is a real Monet who was trapped as penance and she gets freed. Again, please go back to the Monet episode. I can't do this again. Gaia also turns back up and is invited to join the school to help her acclimate to Earth-616. Everett has feelings for Gaia, which provokes jealousy from both Jubilee and Monet, who have feelings for him. When new writer Jay Ferber takes over the book, he writes out Gaia almost immediately, and Monet begins pursuing Everett romantically. Falling on hard financial times, Emma Frost is forced to invite her evil sister Adrienne to become co-headmistress at the Academy in exchange for funding. Adrienne insists that the school open to human students, forcing Gen X to begin concealing their mutant identities and true purpose. Adrienne then tries to kill them all by programming a danger room recreation of the massacre of the Hellions, Emma's previous student class. Gen X ultimately prevails, and Adrienne flees, vowing revenge. Not long after this, Monet leaves the school to be with her family. On the way out, she bids farewell to Everett by kissing him in front of everyone, shocking him. After an adventure in Switzerland, where her new school turns out to be full of vampires, don't worry about it, Monet returns to Massachusetts and she and Everett begin dating. Unfortunately, two issues later, Adrienne comes back and stirs up chaos around the school, eventually creating an anti-mutant moral panic. Everett defends Skin and Chamber, who are visible mutants from bullies who then beat the hell out of Everett. Then Adrienne sets a bunch of bombs around the school because she truly is a mustache-twirling kind of over-the-top villain like that. She's great. Everett and Banshee attempt to defuse the bombs, but it's taking too long, and Ev suggests splitting up so they can rescue more people faster. Banshee objects because by himself, Everett won't have anyone to sync with to copy a superpower. But Everett runs off on his own anyway, much to Monet's horror. She chases after him, but Everett comes upon a bomb it's too late to defuse. When some human students won't listen to him about it, Ev decides to leap onto the bomb and take the blast himself, reaching out to sync with Monet's invulnerability. Unfortunately, Monet is still just too far away, and Ev is only able to partially sync with her. Without full invulnerability, he's killed by the explosion and dies in Monet's arms as she arrives too late. The Generation X title is cancelled not long after this, with Everett's death devastating his friends and teachers. After the surviving kids learn Emma murdered Adrienne in cold blood, they abandon the Massachusetts Academy and the book concludes. Eight years later, during the 2009 franchise-wide event Necrotia, Everett is one of many dead mutant characters reanimated and controlled by Selene as she attempts to achieve true godhood. He returns to the grave when the event concludes. After the 2019 soft reboot, House of X and Powers of Ten, by writer Jonathan Hickman, the new mutant sovereign nation on the living island Krakoa boasts a secret technology, the ability to resurrect dead mutants through the power of the mutant circuit called the Five. Everett is one of the first mutants to be brought back, because his copying power would enable him to stand in for one of the members of the Five if necessary. 
Skin, who had died in the Chuck Austin run on Uncanny X-Men, is also resurrected early to help Everett acclimate to his new situation. Everett is then chosen, alongside Laura Kinney, codenamed Wolverine, formerly called X-23, and Armando Munoz, codenamed Darwin, for a special mission to assess the threat called the Children of the Vault. The Vault exists in accelerated time, but by copying Laura's healing factor, Everett will be able to survive. Upon entering the Vault, however, the three immediately lose contact with their Krakoan handlers. About a year in real time later, a two-issue arc reveals the harrowing experience of the Vault. Sink, Wolverine, and Darwin live for hundreds of years battling the post-human children, and Everett discovers that following his resurrection, he's now able to sink with non-mutant powers. During their centuries in the vault, Everett and Laura fall in love, but it all goes awry when Darwin is captured by the children. They atomize him and steal his reactive adaptation power to aid in their own evolution. When Everett and Laura attempt to escape, Laura is forced to sacrifice herself so Everett can get out. While he's also killed by the children, he manages to step outside the vault first, allowing the Cerebro system, no longer disrupted by the vault signal jammers, to make a backup of his memories. When the three are resurrected on Krakoa, Everett is therefore the only one to remember the experience of the vault. Rather than mourning his relationship with Laura, he expresses excitement about the possibility of getting to know her all over again. Shortly thereafter, both Everett and Laura are elected to the new team of X-Men by Democratic vote at the Hellfire Gala. Now starring in a relaunch of X-Men by Jerry Duggan and Pepe Larath, Sink has found his spotlight, and this young leader once slain before his time is finally getting the opportunity to reach his full potential. X-Men, X-Men. And we're back. Hope you enjoyed that overview of Sink's publication history. I am here again with Kendra James, senior podcast producer at Crooked Media, author of the upcoming memoir, Admissions, about her time as one of the only black students at the prestigious Taft boarding school. Everett is, of course, one of the only black students at the prestigious Massachusetts Academy branch of the Xavier School for Gifted Youngsters, which is, as we've talked about, one of the reasons you gravitated to this character as a kid. What were your favorite stories that you could remember? Gosh, the thing that jumped out most was like the M plate stuff. Yeah. Mostly because like I enjoyed people who could take you under a thrall. I liked uh, enchantment of people. I liked vampires, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. That one really jumped out at me. Yeah, because Everett is the one, again, because he's sort of the most likable, normal character, he's the one who gets infected by M-Plate and briefly becomes a marrow vampire himself. Yes. <laughs> M-Plate is a pretty sick fuck and, like, sends him to go eat his own family and luckily right. he's able to resist and not do that. Monet, although it's secretly the twins, but don't worry about it. Listen to the Monet episode. We're just, we don't need to get into it again. <laughs> <laughs> Too deep. But M is like sync with me. Right. And he syncs with her and it gives him like a feedback. We can break the... It knocks the M-plate stuff out of his body, basically. Yeah. But yeah, I think that that was a really cool story because it showed just how powerful he is because the mm -hmm. whole team has to fight him when he's like evil vampire, mind control, sync, and he can just mimic all their powers and knock them back with them, basically. So it's really about his ability to push through the mental conditioning to stop himself. And it's, I mean, it's really, it comes down to a lot of the same stuff that I enjoyed about Monet as well, which was like, like you said, he becomes super powerful. And that's mm -hmm. kind of just what I was looking for in characters. I just like, especially the black characters, like I wanted to see people in these books who were super powerful, who were getting the time to shine like that. So I think that is one of the reasons why that one sticks out. Also the fact that like he had throughout the entire book 
I feel like he had a lot of like sex, not sexual chemistry. They were teens, but they had like. There's sexual chemistry when you're teens. Yeah, I yeah, certainly, you can do that. Yes. You remember being a teen. Yes, I had sex. You know, I know that like why <laughs> Tumblr might object, but teens have sex. <laughs> they do. I did not because I, I was not that cool. Well, I did. I wasn't that cool <laughs> either, but I was sexually active. Yes. When I was the Gen X kid's age, so. Trust me, I wanted to be. Um, unfortunately, I, <laughs> the only thing I was interested in fucking was like an elf or a vampire. Um, um, well, I mean, you know, it wasn't exactly easy for me to find <laughs> what I was looking for yeah. either. Because it was men, so it was not, you know. <laughs> right. Uh, anyway, point being, so like, also the thing that I loved about Everett was that he did have that sort of like tension with a lot of the female characters at the school. Except for Husk, who only had eyes for Chamber because they right. were in their, like, tortured thing. Yes. Every girl at the school, meaning Jubilee and M, those are the other two, <laughs> yeah. right, had a crush on him. Right. His relationship with Jubilee is actually really interesting because I feel like it's a flip of the dynamic that you see a lot where it's, like, a female main character has this best friend guy who's, like, friend-zoned but is in love with her. That's the relationship that Everett and Jubilee have, where they're best mm-hmm. friends. She is completely head over heels for him. Right. And he doesn't notice. Mm-hmm. He's just like, that's Jubilee. Like, she's my bestie. Well, it's because he he only has eyes for Monet. He is obsessed with Monet. Right. Yes. And there's something kind of cool about that, too, actually, given how unusual it is to see, like, this has been pointed out many times to black characters dating in a superhero comic. Right. Because (laughs) black characters tend to be in interracial relationships in superhero comics, which is something I had never really thought about because I'm white and it hadn't really Mm -hmm. occurred to me. And so I was like, yeah, I love Misty Knight and Iron Fist. I love, you know, all these characters. I even loved Storm and Forge because back in the eighties, that was. Oh my God. I forgot about. Yes. They were cool in the eighties stuff. I mean, he's like a piece of shit, but she knows (laughs) and she likes him anyway. And it's kind of fun. But yeah, so like the fact that Everett could have been with one of these other girls, but is only into the black girl right. is an interesting thing that I think is kind of cool. Well, he was just, he was raised correctly. No, I'm <laughs> Kendra has Sorry. a white husband. I am, mar- I am married to a to white man. To be clear. <laughs> so she's not actually dissing into her relationships. No. <laughs> her husband is extremely white. He has white hair. He's prematurely gray. <laughs> I like him very much. They're a fun couple. Anyway, no, yeah, I, I totally get what you're saying, though, and that is, that's extremely important. That's not even something that we see a lot to this day in comics. That is why a lot of people are really invested in Storm and Black Panther, which I don't yes. like at all. But I get why, representationally, it was important to a lot of people. I'm sure that has something to do with the reason that I was, and I mentioned this last time I was on, but I was obsessed with Jon Stewart and Fatality. And I'm sure that had something yeah, to do with it, Yeah, which, too. like, again, that's not a relationship, but, no. like, it's something, you know? Yes. <laughs> Well, and it's why a lot of people shipped Storm and Bishop, and I had to be like, she's his grandma. (laughs) But does that really matter? Because people don't know that if they didn't read the 90s stuff. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) It matters. You shouldn't shouldn't date your grandma. Yeah, no, no. In my opinion. I mean, time travel is weird, but don't date your grandma is my feeling. I I can't wait to see what powers Mary Crosby ends up having on uh, season two of Salt Lake. (laughs) Woof. This is Real House of Salt Lake City. If you're so familiar, sorry. Where one of the women is married to her step-grandfather. Um, <laughs> actually, I have to say, in the reunion when they explained themselves, I was like, okay, actually, for them, between it's a them, little more it's normal less than weird than I thought it was, but it's still 
unspeakably fucking weird. I still don't love that they have a teenage son, but you know what? It's fine. I still don't love that he knew her when she was a baby. I don't love it. It's not great. I'm just saying, learning that he's only 18 years older than her and that he was like her grandmother's young right. thing. Like now it's just like generations of weird, right? Yes. As opposed to like, so anyway, don't worry about it. Watch that show though. It is high house. Like, I'm truly like, at this point, Bravo knows exactly what the fuck yes. it's doing. And that show is firing on all cylinders. And <laughs> one of them got arrested for unbelievable amounts of fraud between seasons. Southern District of New York. While... <laughs> While they were filming season two. So season two is going to be a banger, I think. Are you watching Beverly Hills? Yeah, because it's better than New York right now. No comments. <laughs> I represent. I know. <laughs> anyway, back to. Back to the X-Men. The actual, uh, <laughs> the grandmother shipper thing. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So, you know, I don't ship Storm Bishop because she's heavily implied to be his grandmother. But to go back. Yes. Yeah, so that was one reason why Everett and Monet was cool. Of course, even in that case, it was weird because the first time they kiss, it's actually the twins. Yes, he doesn't two, know about the, two the children twins. on top of each other. He's the first person to realize that she's two children in a trench coat because <laughs> he sinks with her to save her life shortly after that. Yes. And he's the one who pulls the twins out of the rubble. And he's worried that, like, his power did it somehow. He's like, why is she turned into two eight-year-olds? You know, <laughs> but... It turns out to be fine because once the real Monet, who is retconned to exist, shows up, they're on, like, officially. She pursues him. Because the thing about Everett is that he just doesn't realize that, like, any of these girls have crushes on him. Well, because he's a teenage boy. Well, but it's kind of sweet because, like, you know, I think a lot of male characters in that age range are often written as, like, very... Like, ultra-sexual. Or aware of their sexuality. Very much, like, chasing the girls. And Mm -hmm. he's just not that guy. So he needs the most beautiful girl in the school who he has a crush on to be like, I am attracted to you. Right. I'm going to kiss you in front of everyone right now. Cool. Okay, great. She thinks she's leaving forever, though. It's like her exit. And then she has the vampire slayer arc and comes back like three issues later. And it's like, oops, never mind. And they start dating. One issue that I liked going back, it's issue like four, I want to say. It's very early in the run. It's this one-off kind of bottle episode with Nanny and the Orphan Maker. Oh. Where there's a hostage crisis because this kid who's, like, physically deformed, who thinks he's a mutant, holds his teacher hostage. And Gen X is, like, trying to figure out what to do. Nanny and the Orphan Maker show up because it's a mutant child. That's They, like, kidnap mutant children and raise them. That's their thing. So Gen X has to fight off the Orphan Maker. The teacher who loved this kid dies of a heart attack so it's like very sad and that's what calms down the whole situation and then at the end Everett it turns out has an added element to his power that makes perfect sense but I don't think it had been set up to that point which is that he can detect mutants oh yes he can track other mutants with his aura I mean that makes entire sense actually (laughs) so he reaches out to the kid and realizes the kid just has a physical deformity. He's not actually an X-gene mutant. So they can't take him with them. And it's like a sad story, but it's a nice little moment of power for Everett because it's like, well, of course Everett can detect mutants. It can tell you what someone's power is Mm -hmm. because he can feel it, you know? So that's a cool aspect of his power that hasn't really been explored much, but that I think has a lot of potential. It's sort of like Sage. There are a couple characters that can do that. Can I add just like, 
let me just make this story a little sadder for you. This issue is a Christmas issue. It is, in fact, a Christmas (laughs) issue. Yeah, it's rough. The Christmas issues of Gen X are rough in general. The other big Christmas issue in Gen X is the one where, like, it's the girls all recounting their traumas to each other. And Emma's like, yeah, well, when I was a girl, I was put in a mental institution against my will because of my telepathy. And then the guards sexually abused me. And you're like, wow, this is a lot. So it's funny. I have told my therapist about, uh, because we used, at boarding school, you do that, um, at least with the black girls. Like, we would sit around telling stories of, like, the worst times our parents beat us. And But we would be doing it to make make each other laugh. Like, we would tell what we considered hilarious stories about, like, the whoopings that we got when we were younger. My therapist tells me that's called trauma bonding. (laughs) (laughs) That is what that's called. And that is exactly what X-Men characters tend to do, right? Because most of them... (laughs) Even Monet, who comes from this very she she background. Yeah. She comes from. She still has a lot of pain. Right. Yeah. (laughs) And part of why it's the girls doing that, I mean, Chamber and Skin could participate, but Everett is not a character who particularly has any trauma, which is, Mm -hmm. again, I think why he's the character who dies because that's trauma for the rest of them. It like furthers their trauma journey. The other way to do it would have been to kill Jubilee. But they're not going to do that because Jubilee's the character who was popular enough that they built this entire book around her. Right. She's on the cartoon. Like, you're not going to kill off Jubilee. You know, although then they decimate her not long after this book gets canceled, which I still think is one of the wildest. She still came back faster than Everett. She sure did. She was a vampire. First, she was a new warrior. When they did that new warriors run where all the depowered mutants, that run is bad. Don't read it. Okay. But she's called Wondra for a minute and is like using tech. Then she was a vampire and then Christina Strain brought her powers back and made her not a vampire. It was a process. Yes, though, it did did happen a lot faster than the return of Sink because there wasn't a super easy plot way to bring him back and he wasn't a popular enough character that there was like a demand to bring him back and Gen X wasn't that wildly popular a book. Apart from Monet, the characters from it had not become that prominent. So it's sort of like all these factors that aligned you needed someone to come in and have writing control who really loved that book. Yeah. It's like, and I, I should be clear. Like I don't blame Marvel for not like, Oh, of course it's a little ridiculous that he was dead from uh, 2001 until like 2019. Cause that is a long time for any X-Men character, yeah. but it's not something that like I hold against Marvel. It's not like, I think that they were like doing this on purpose. Like, just right. No, of course, of course. <laughs> And there are a lot of characters who've come back in the Krakoa era who were dead even longer than him. So, (laughs) you know, that's part of the magic of this era is Jonathan Hickman realizing, because it's such a joke that the X-Men come back from the dead, right? Like it's a meme in fandom. And Jonathan Hickman realizing, wait, that's one of the strengths of the X-Men is that the characters Mm -hmm. always come back if you wait long enough. What if we just make that part of the story that they can come back from the dead? Like that's genius. (laughs) And Sink is the character probably benefiting from it most. I will say that one thing about him being like the relatable character who's also this black male character is you get sometimes a little bit of respectability politics with this character in the Gen mm-hmm. X material. Yeah. I remember there's a story I'm interested in your thoughts on if you remember this story. It's like Gen X like 39 to 40. It's after the Gaia plot, which like okay. I don't care for. Because he does have a crush on her, so it's not just Monet, I guess, <laughs> when I think about it. But Gaia's not a character we really have to worry about. 
Do you even remember Gaia? I can picture her. I, she has the pink hair. She's the girl with the pink hair. She's like immortal. She like manages the universal amalgamator. Like truly, don't worry about it. I truly like, and the thing is, I don't even remember her from Gen X. I remember her because the art that I'm seeing in my head is like new. So it must, she definitely has come back since then. No, she hasn't. She hasn't? She's never been seen again. Never been That's seen again. That's so weird. Because I have like a very new look of her in my brain. But hmm, maybe I am remembering from back in that time. Anyway. But so the story basically is that there's these sort of like local townies, mm-hmm. these delinquents, Dorian and Weasel, who have been sort of back. They're kind of like Balkan Skull from the Power <laughs> from Rangers. Power Rangers. <laughs> Not to bring Power Rangers back, but it was my first thought. Basically, they beat the shit out of Everett. And he doesn't have any powers synced at the time. Okay. So he's just like regular. And they put him in a coma. Mm-hmm. and he wakes up when the Gen X kids visit him and he sinks with them automatically and it like rouses him awake. So then the cops bring Dorian and Weasel to the hospital so Everett can identify them and he's like, oh no, it wasn't them. They had nothing to do with it. And all of the other kids are like, we know that it was them. Like, why are you being... Re-? like?" So they're worried that Sink is planning to like take private revenge or mm-hmm. something. And then it turns out instead that... He just has no interest in any kind of revenge. He gives them some money to repair their car because they were angry. (laughs) They were angry that their car got destroyed in like a super battle. And he's just like, here's some money like from his savings. He's like, pay for your car. Right. And then he and Jubilee have this conversation and he's like, hatred is a cycle, Jubilee. Someone needs to break the cycle and like stop the hate. At the time I was like, what a cool guy. But thinking about it, It is very much like these white kids beat the shit out of the black kid, like in a very visceral series of panels. And he has to be the bigger person and be like, it would be wrong to punish them. Yes. You know? Yeah. And you completely, I mean, even in that first panel that you sent me earlier, um, that whole panel, aside from the way he's dressed and like the way it's illustrated, that whole panel is respectability politics. Yeah, it's like the cops can't believe that this kid is the yes. one in trouble. He's the good one. Yes, and the fact that they're the only reason they're hesitating and like what's implied is we haven't shot you because we know that you get A's. But it's like, no, you you still don't shoot people if they get F's. Like th- that, it's the whole thing is like based in in respectability. Right. Uh, yeah. It's it's a, uh, yeah. <laughs> that was sort of like one of his big stories that I remember. He doesn't have that many starring roles. There's the M plate story. There's that one. There's his relationship with Monet. There's his friendship with Jubilee. But Gen X is really more of a team book. It's like this team has an adventure. They don't really get like no. a ton of solo stuff. He's just always there and he can be that way because like you said, he is sort of that everyman uh, reader relationship yeah. character. So he just has to be there. Right. And his power is very useful in just about any situation. So mm-hmm. you can write him into just about any plot. Yeah. And then, of course, he dies tragically at the end of the book. And it fucks everybody up. Sacrificing his life for everyone else, you know. Yeah. Another kind of respectability politic ending for him. But I mean... Uh... In the end, he takes the Black Breast Friend route from a lot of things and is the yes. one who dies. Yep. And he dies saving everybody else. It's an interesting sequence because basically Adrian Frost has put bombs around the school. Banshee is like, don't run off by yourself, Everett. You won't have any powers. But Everett's like, I need to save people. 
and he does, but he jumps on the bomb himself. He reaches out to sink with Monet, but she's too far away physically. So he gets some of it, but he doesn't get He gets get her enough. super strength, but not her invulnerability. Right. And so the bomb still kills him. It's really sad. That's sort of the end of the book. There's a couple more issues, but basically they're all really fucked up about it. Monet and Jubilee finally resolve their differences because they're both grieving and they realize, like, who cares, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, why are we fighting? This is so stupid. Right. Then they all find out that Emma murdered Adrian, and they're freaked out, and they all decide to quit. And that's the end yeah. of the book. It's a downer ending. I remember that cover. Just like a closed gate. Yep. <laughs> just a closed gate, dark, stormy night, big sign that says closed. <laughs> yeah, it's a real downer ending, and it sends Emma and Sean off in pretty dark directions. Emma then, of course, winds up in the Grant Morrison book and becomes right. a bigger character than she ever was before. But Sean really loses himself in drinking and then shows up in that arc of the Joe Casey Uncanny running a fascist mutant police force and enlisting <laughs> some of the Gen X kids in it because it's like Monet and Husk and Jubilee and they say to Chamber, they're like, we're here to keep an eye on him because he has really lost it. <laughs> <laughs> that was it for the character for a really long time. He comes back in Necrotia, but like in the background because all the dead characters came back in Necrotia. He doesn't like mm -hmm. really do anything. Then he was back for... Krakoa, and it's established in data pages and stuff that he's one of the first mutants that the five bring back. Yes. Because his power allows him to theoretically substitute for any of the five if one of them is unable to participate in the resurrection process. And they resurrect Skin at the same time because they want Sink to have a friend from the same age group going through the same I'm back to life process mm -hmm. to adjust. And it's cute, actually, in the issue where the X-Men are elected toward the end of the Hellfire Gala. When Sink is chosen and it's announced, you see him and Skin and Monet are all, like, having a drink together. Yeah. And Skin is like, my boy! Like, he's, like, thrilled. <laughs> Monet is just sort of like, huh. Like, she looks a little intrigued. Clearly has moved on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think we haven't seen them talk yet. I'm sure we will. Sink is at the forefront of this team. Monet has been in the forefront of her own book, X-Corp, for a little while now. So I think that we will see them interact. But imagine how weird that is. Right. That it's like your high school boyfriend who died in your arms. Is now. Comes yeah. back to life when you're like 25. <laughs> and I mean, again, I think we're supposed to assume he came back like the age he's supposed to be. I mean, they all look, they all looked aligned yeah they all look the same age which it's like when they brought back cypher and it was like is doug the same age as the other new mutants or is he like five it's like this is not a question you're supposed to ask like just move right on. <laughs> but emotionally he's been dead for a while and she had to process all of that and get over it and then, like she became an x-man she went through all this other stuff that he wasn't there for he missed her entire x-factor investigations period oh yeah that is true which by the way i was gonna ask so on one of these panels that I was reading, I think it's from the, yeah, it's from the one where he's elected. They draw Peter David into the gala. Or is that George R.R. R. Martin? Sorry, one of the, it was. That's George R.R. Martin. Okay, that was strange. That was just There's a bunch of celebrity guests. There's a very weird splash page. And like, I love Pat Oswalt. 
Yes. No disrespect. But okay. He is I was so up confused. at the front. Yeah. No. Yes. So part of how they promoted the event was that like celebrity fans of the X Men are at the gala. Right. Like Run the Jewels are there. Megan Rapino is there. Conan O'Brien <laughs> is there. Like they're in sort of cameos. Mm-hmm. The guy that Cyclops tells, it's like, so what's your story to Cyclops? And Cyclops gives like a speech that ends the issue. That's Kevin Feige. Oh, okay. Which a lot of people were like, this is corny. I thought it was funny because all (laughs) anybody wants to talk about outside of like talking about the comics themselves is like, when will the X-Men be in the MCU? So having Kevin Feige at the gala, like, so what's your deal to Cyclops? I thought was hysterically funny. (laughs) I completely got the intent of the joke and I thought it was good. So... (laughs) It certainly did set off about six billion clickbait articles. I'm like, what does this oh, mean? Sure. And I'm like, it doesn't have to mean anything. It's Jonathan Hickman making a joke. It's like not that serious. <laughs> but yes, so that was George R. R. Martin, not Peter David. Okay. Yeah, I was I was wondering because I was like, okay, well, I'd see like Jamie's here, Monet's here, maybe they drew him it, but no, it makes no, that no, makes no, sense yeah, too. Yeah. But anyway, the only real story we've had so far is the story in the vault. What did you think of the vault story? So I liked the vault stuff. Um, I especially liked that second issue. Yeah. The focus issue where it's all from his perspective. Yes. So let's back up. Because what I did not do was like research. Because I knew that they weren't mute. The people that they were fighting were not mutants. Because they do say that in the text. So the children of the vault have not appeared in that many stories. They are villains from the Mike Carey run, which was in the aughts. Hickman is a big fan of the Mike Carey run. I am also a big fan of the Mike Carey run. I think Mike Carey's run on X-Men and the Zeb Wells run on New Mutants are sort of, to me, the two gems of that decimation period that I'm just generally not crazy about. Mm -hmm. Mike Carey introduced this new threat called the Children of the Vault. They're basically hyper-advanced, techno-organic life forms. The Vault operates at a dilated time structure So hundreds, thousands of years pass and not that much time has passed outside. Mm -hmm. They're basically a self-evolving AI. Okay, cool. That, sure. So they present a pretty big threat to mutant because this is something when you get a chance to read House of X Powers of 10, it establishes that Moira McTaggart's goal, she's secretly been reincarnating over and over. Mm -hmm. Okay. Her goal through 10 lifetimes has been to prevent humans from inventing AI that will invariably wipe out mutants. Okay. And so the children of the vault are seen as a pretty significant threat on that level. sort of like Nimrod and the super sentinels and things like that. So that's why they're back. They thematically make sense. And the problem is now much worse because they sent Darwin into the vault with Laura and sink and the children were able to atomize Darwin and I think he's probably still alive inside yes, them. that's what which I assumed. Is dark, right? Right. <laughs> but maybe he'll be able to turn things around at some point. But now there's two of him because they did resurrect him on Krakoa. So I do yes. think that he's still alive in the vault. I think that will be a twist because you can't kill Darwin. Yeah, uh, uh, Much as the movies would have us believe otherwise. Yeah. <laughs> but the point is they managed to incorporate his reactive adaptation power into themselves. So they're now way scarier than they were before. <laughs> and it's like, great, we made it worse. So they're basically super advanced cyborg AI things. And they parallel the Krakoan mutants because the vault, the city, can bring them back when they die. Okay. So you can see the forever war that could be building. Yes. Okay. So that, okay, that makes a lot of sense. Aside from that, like, little piece of backstory, which clearly you needed to know on some level. Yeah. It was 
very easy to follow, which I really appreciated. Like, it felt like we were starting a new saga here. I will say, the first issue of Hickman's X-Men run, mm-hmm. he reintroduces the Children of the Vault and tells you okay. who they are. So I should have sent okay. you that one, too, probably. That's <laughs> yeah, fine. But I did really like sort of the storytelling method here of the use of the timeline, which, like, really <laughs> just, like, condensed things down for... You know what I'm talking about, yeah. right? Like yeah. The, yeah. The data page. Exactly. That was an innovation of this period, the data pages, and some people don't love them. I think they're great. (laughs) When they're used well, they're, like, really... Because we don't need to see hundreds of years go by the issue if we can get the gist from a data page and see the cool moments that we need to see, you know? Yes. Yeah, and it really just helps streamline everything. The art was great because that told its own story just in terms of, like, as the years were passing. Yeah. So that, like, I just felt this was very well put together, especially for something where the characters, we weren't going to find out what happened to at least Everett at the end because Everett is the only one. Um, He's the only one who remembers what happened. Right. But so, like, especially since we're then not going to find out what happens to at least Everett for another two years, I guess? Or no, no. No, that wasn't that long ago. That wasn't that long ago. There was a long gap between the issue where they go in and then the issue where we get, here's what happens in the vault. And people were, like, very impatient. In part, it was because of COVID. Like, the books got delayed. But, like, people were like, and Laura's a very popular character. So they were like, Laura's been in the vault for, like, a year, guys. We need to get (laughs) Laura out of the vault. Was, like, fans were reacting. I thought it was honestly pretty well-timed because by the time you really are like, it's ridiculous that these characters haven't come out yet, then suddenly you get the issue where like, bang, it's two issues and like, we're in the fucking vault. Right. I thought that that was well done. I thought that that was strong. You know, I think that that issue made a lot of sync fans who hadn't existed before. And that's the key because a whole generation of comics readers have been born in the time that he's been dead. Mm -hmm. So if you want to give him the big promotion you really have a lot of ground to cover. And I think that that issue, I mean, the Sink and Laura thing, I have seen people either like or not like. Mm -hmm. I have seen the complaint that it's about him and not about her. And I get that complaint, but like- But hasn't she- The issue's from his perspective. So like, you know. Also like, she is an extremely popular character. I'm sure she's had plenty of time. Like, it's not always just gonna be about him. (laughs) Also, the takeaway I had at the end of the issue, you know, when it repeats, like her popping the claw, like, don't look at me weird. Yes. And he smiles again. People were like, oh, is he going to be creepy now? Because he like knew her and he like has all these memories. And I'm like, no, the vibe I got from it is the vault experience sets Sync up as a parallel to the experience of Moira that we read about in House of X Powers of Ten, where she has Mm -hmm. lived several lifetimes. She has met these people over and over again. And she reacts differently each time and it creates new scenarios. What Sink has now got is this lifetime that none of the other people who were there, well, the children experienced it, but that Darwin and Laura did not experience. And his reaction is not to be depressed that she doesn't remember him. It's to be pleased that he now has the opportunity to get to know her all over again, Mm -hmm. to do it all again, if she wants to. It doesn't feel like... It doesn't feel forced. No, and it feels wistful, and it feels to me like it characterizes who he is as a person. It's like, for some people, that experience of, like, I remember spending a lifetime with you, and not a lifetime that's normal, like, hundreds Mm -hmm. of years, and you don't remember any of it. If that happened to me, I would be, like, under my bed for months. (laughs) And he just is like, you know what? If it's meant to be, it'll happen again. 
Right. And I think that's cool. I think also, like, what the end of this two-issue arc does, at least for me, like, as someone who has already read Gen X and, like, saw him die the one time, I think it was actually very smart to have him, to, like, show him at the end coming out of the resurrection thing, just so that we know, like, yes, he will definitely, if he dies again, he's coming back. He's coming back. Remember, we can do this now. Yes, it's a very good thing to just, like, remind us that we have not just brought him back to be a sacrificial lamb again. (laughs) No, we've brought him back to be a really important person, to be a hero, to be someone who has knowledge no one else is able to have. Because he has that self-sacrificing nature, right? Like, that is always such a thing that characterized him. And so to have the ability to throw himself on the bomb and then come back, which is the power that he now has... That alone is an enormous power up for Sick. If you're the kind of person who's prone to self-sacrifice. You want that. (laughs) Yeah, that's pretty cool, right? So I think we may see him die a lot. Because he's the kind of character who will throw himself onto a problem. But now, because of the gift of Krakoa, he's able to come back. And so that is a cool thing. Yeah, and that's what I took from that. And that I guess I was wondering, like... If they're going to do that with him, because like that's what it that's what this the end of this led me to believe. I guess they just have to be really careful that they're not over you. Like have they Because you don't want to kill the black character like fifty times. There's like that aspect, but then just like the aspect of like how many people are we doing this with? Because like obviously I have not read I'm still like jumping back in. Like, are we using the Oh, everybody's back. Okay. Are we repeating though? Are we con are we like bringing people back from the dead like multiple times after they've died it depends on the book i mean like x-force because it's like the black ops book they die a lot and come back a lot (laughs) one of the things that's interesting about it is once you take death off the table as an actual consequence you have to come up with other stakes so i think that it's interesting because now characters can die but oh i got killed is just like an emotional beat it's like i had a bad day right it's about the consequences of that it's like are we immortal now like there are things to think about it opens new avenues for story, mm-hmm. but at the same time, it does close a lot of things. But the problem with X-Men is that at this point, we knew that anybody who died would eventually come back whenever a writer wanted to bring them back. So again, I think having the story acknowledge death is not a real consequence in X-Men comics and hasn't been for a long time. Yeah. Let's find new consequences. Whether we're formalizing it or not. Yeah, so like in a recent issue of Excalibur, some evil wizards sacrificed Pete Wisdom as a human sacrifice. He came back immediately, but now he's stuck on Krakoa. <laughs> and he's really not happy about it. There's ways you can do stuff right. that I think can be interesting and could create new opportunities. So I'm really excited to see where Sync goes from here, because the thing about him is he really is a blank slate in a lot of ways. Yeah, You have the essential pieces of the character from Gen X, like who he is as a person, that he is self-sacrificing, that he is generally nonviolent when there are other options, that he is sort of the level-headed one with leadership skills. Mm -hmm. There's all that stuff there that you can work with, but he's now been through a number of character redefining experiences. I mean, coming back from the dead to begin with, but also the experience of the vault, he's now lived much longer than we ever knew the character previously. So you can justify any real shift in his personality or in his outlook or in how he wants to behave in the world because he lived for several hundred years now. So he will be clashing with Cyclops is what you're saying. (laughs) 
I hope so. I would like yeah. to see. I would like to see the way that Cyclops regards him as like one of the younger students clashing mm-hmm. with the fact that actually you sent me into the vault and now I'm older than you significantly. Right. I think that's interesting. And he's not the kind of person to be insubordinate. No. But I do think that he is not just going to like listen to orders. Mm-hmm. And I think that could be interesting. Like he'll have an opinion. <laughs> and it's a team with a lot of people who have opinion. Rogue never hesitates to share an opinion. Polaris especially with how Duggan is characterizing her in that first issue with her matched luggage. Right. She's not going to be an easy personality. (laughs) Right. She's not shy about sharing her opinion if she thinks you're being stupid. And then Laura, I mean, she was like raised in a lab as a killing machine. Like she has her own chip on her shoulders. And Sunfire has always been like a prick. Right. So I am intrigued to see this team. It feels like Scott and Jean and a bunch of difficult personalities. And Scott and Jean themselves are difficult personalities yes. in certain ways. And I, I think with Everett, it's also interesting because like he clearly has a very different history and knowledge of Emma. Yeah. Than Jean or Scott do. And probably has a much more favorable opinion towards her, I would assume. Well, Scott has a pretty high opinion of yeah. Emma. But yeah, I mean, certainly as opposed to Rogue or Polaris. Mm-hmm. it's like very different to have been Emma's student and to only have known her as like your mentor. Right. <laughs> yeah. Especially with the Inferno event that's ramping up this fall where one of the covers has Emma holding Xavier and Magneto's helmets as though she's taking over now. So depending on where Emma goes next, I think that also could be a really fruitful line. Because the thing about Emma is the deaths of her students has always been the thing that devastates her her most. Something that has not really been explored with her yet on Krakoa. And I would like to see it as an Emma fan. I think we really need to see it. The Hellions are back. Right. We haven't really seen her talk to them. She became a good guy because those kids got murdered. And... (laughs) Then, like, you know, went a bit off the deep end because Everett got murdered. Mm -hmm. So those are characters I would like to see. Much like I would like to see him and Monet and him and Jubilee have conversations now, I would love to see him talk to Emma. Because what a beautiful result for her that this student she was so proud of is not only back from the dead, but was elected to the X-Men. That's cool. (laughs) And she... You know that's a feather in her cap. Right. (laughs) Because that's how she thinks. Looks good for her. No, yeah, you're completely, you're completely right. <laughs> like emotionally, she's pleased, but also like, ah, another one of mine, child. Mine. See, like you know, that's <laughs> certainly how she feels about Monet. Yes. Which drives Monet fucking crazy. Because Monet, because she's her own person and she did it all. Yeah, herself. Monet's like, I did this myself. Thank you. And you're annoying. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I mean, my hopes for the character are just that he will continue to exist in a central role in this yeah. new age. I think he's set up well. Yeah, he's taking on a prominence he's never had before. And he has a really adaptable power. He has an accessible personality. And that scene with Laura also, after they get out, I think serves to make it clear that despite this experience his personality hasn't changed that significantly no um and i wouldn't be surprised if the vault kind of feels to him like a dream or something because it Mm -hmm. would be wild to be back young again and be like all of that happened i guess you know yeah i mean i'm sure we'll if if they know what they're doing we'll be processing we'll be digging into that i'm sure yeah (laughs) throughout the next several years probably of publication 
Right. But I'm excited he's back, and I'm excited for you and for other people who loved that character in the 90s, because what a treat. This is going to be great. He's back. They have a treehouse. Love the treehouse. Obsessed with the treehouse. Yeah. No, I'm excited. We're going to fight some gambling aliens, and it's going to be a good time. And hopefully we're going to get more X-Men on TV at some point as well. Like, springing from this. I don't know. I'm just, like, I'm just glad. You have no idea how nice it was to just, like, read a comic book, several comic books, and really be able to just follow what was going on in terms of the X-Men. Yeah. Like, it's just a unique and wonderful I told experience. you. I told you I you could do it. I was like, <laughs> you can jump back in. This is the moment. It's really possible. I swear. Yes. <laughs> I think now is a good time to go to the listener questions, and then I'll give you an opportunity to talk a little bit about the work you're doing right now, about your book that's coming up, and plug anything else that you want to plug. Sweet. Andre Hetu writes, Hi, Connor, it's me, Andre, again. I'm wondering whether you think that having Sink's killer, Emma's sister, Adrienne, back on Krakoa would be appropriate. What if after resurrection they send you to Arako or something, where you won't be surrounded by people you hurt and they won't have to run into you? That's kind of a funny idea, but I think that with the amnesty thing, you know, part of Krakoa is that everybody has to just deal with the people who've done bad stuff to them because we're trying to do a mutant solidarity thing. You have to let the past go, etc. To varying degrees of success. Like, it's very clear from X-Corp that Monet is not going to hang out with Fenris, no matter what amnesty right. <laughs> we're doing. She's like, that's a Nazi. Like, we're not yes. going to hang out. There actually was a moment in Marauders where Emma... She says Cordelia. I think that was a mistake. I think it was supposed to say Adrian. But when she's threatening Shaw, she's like, if you cross me again, you'll be put under my sister Cordelia on the resurrection protocol list. And she's very, very low. You know, <laughs> I think Emma's going to make sure Adrian does not get brought back. She doesn't yeah. much like Cordelia either, but I think that was supposed to be Adrian. But I also think I'm thinking like all respect to your wonderful listener. We want them to be all mixed together. Yes. And I personally want Adrienne back. I think right. that Emma absolutely should have to deal with Adrienne being resurrected on Krakoa. That's where all the fun conflict comes exactly. from. And so I think someone should fuck with Emma and move Adrienne up in the resurrection protocol queue. Yeah. And especially as like we were ju literally just saying like that we want to see Emma and Everett like have to interact. And that would be something to talk about. Yes, it certainly would. And, like, Well, you're back. <laughs> and now so is my sister who killed you to get at me. Yeah. Literally killed you just to make me upset. Right. So, yeah, no, the amnesty thing was absolutely a great concept for them to come up with. And like, let's let that play out the way it's supposed to. Yeah, because it's, <laughs> you know... These are, when we come down to it, entertainment books. Correct. And like, <laughs> yes, are there limits to the logic of the amnesty policy? Absolutely. Am I thrilled to read Mr. Sinister rubbing elbows with the heroes and them all having to deal with that? Yes, because it's extremely funny. Yes. So, you know, I'm all for more of that. Jared Williams writes, good evening, Connor and Kendra. Michael Fox from Twitter here at Love, 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 the podcast. I discovered it from a Twitter debate that led to a link to the Gene episode. I died and came back immediately after being blown away at how you and your guests continue to articulate what fans of the characters truly love about them in terms of representation and character beats that flat scans don't understand. That's what I call cishet listeners. Yes. <laughs> I wasn't sure if you'd thought that. No, that's, that's fine. I'm here. Hello. <laughs> 
My question is in regards to the Monet of it all, whom I love dearly. It's interesting that in her dating history, he seems to be the only guy that held a truly special place in her heart. During the X-Men election aftermath, Monet gave the excited Everett an intriguing glance. Why do you think we haven't seen these two talk or make mention of each other given their genuine care for one another up until his death devastated her? Also, what do you think was on Monet's mind when she gave the look towards Everett? Well, we kind of just went into that just a teensy bit. Yeah, so I think part of it is just that, like, they haven't had occasion to be on the page together because he came back and went right into the vault. Right. So I have to assume it will happen soon. But that look was intriguing to me also. I think there are two ways of looking at it. One is just sort of like surprise, sort of like mm-hmm. dull surprise, like him. Huh. <laughs> the question is whether Monet put herself forward in the vote. Yes, which we don't know. Which we don't know. Yeah. I was just scrolling back to like find out about that because the other the way I sort of interpreted it was that she was sizing him up, not necessarily in like a terrible or but like, like bad, can he do this? Way. Yes, exactly. I think it was her being skeptical because she knew him. Yeah, and like the last time they were together, he was a hero about it and got himself killed in a right. way that was not smart necessarily in her view for sure. It certainly like it plays well, but like you know the whole point of being an X Men is to not die. It's better if you're an X-Men and you don't die. And the wider world doesn't know that the mutants can resurrect yet. That's a closely guarded secret. I'm sure it'll get exposed in good order. I mean, in that first issue of the new X-Men title, you you see that Yurik is investigating. So it's something that, you know, we're going to dig into, Mm -hmm. obviously. But he can't go dying on a mission in public because then there will be explanations that have been actually... That would not be a wild way for it to be revealed to people because Sink just can't stop sacrificing himself for people. Right. He'll die in the middle of Times Square and then, like, in be like back yeah, five exactly. Days like, later. Right. And it's like, what happened? It's like, oh, I was fine. You just, you misinterpreted that. <laughs> but yeah, no, I interpret it more as her not being sure that he's up to the task. Right. Like, hoping that he is, but not so sure. Mm-hmm. But if she did put herself forward for the vote and did not win, because she's an abrasive person who not everyone likes, that could be an interesting character beat for the two of them because she has more than earned her stripes as a member of the X-Men, but in a popular vote, Monet isn't necessarily the person who's going to win. But you said she's lead- She's over at X-Force right now anyway. X-Corp. 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 X-Corp, yeah. She's running her own show, so she might not have wanted to be on the X-Men team anyway. Yeah. So it fully depends on whether or not she wanted to. And I'm just not sure. And I bet we'll find out right. is what I'm saying. So, you know, hold that thought. But we don't quite <laughs> know yet. Jorel writes, hi, Connor. First time caller, long time listener here. First, I wanted to say thank you for bringing a podcast that focuses on each character, putting such hard work in. I know the community feels like me and loves it. You feel special when your fave is picked for an episode. So thank you. Well, you're welcome. I, I'm glad. I mean, I'm really it's so nice to talk to all of you. And seeing the response is always really enjoyable. Here's my question. I grew up loving the X-Men, especially the New Mutants. I started reading in the early 90s. I recall the issue was from Walmart and featured Psylocke talking to Archangel about her cyber eyes, which were at the time wrapped in a napkin. I remember that. It's after Revanche rips them out of her because of the legacy virus plot. I say that because at the time there was so much diversity, but I never saw a mutant like me. Just a young, smart, nerdy, but fun, family-oriented black male kid. Then the phalanx issue came and they introduced Everett. I remember him standing there surrounded by police. Now looking back, it was hugely jarring. Back then, it felt normal, sadly. He was the smart kid who they wanted to take in to keep the area safe when he was arguably the one needing help. He had synced his powers to Sabretooth and Banshee as they came to his city. 
I know there are lots of characters of black ancestry or heritage, but to me, he was the first like me. I was a young gay black man. I liked comics, took honors classes. I was studying for my SATs in ninth grade and thinking about taking the ACTs to help with college and get a scholarship if possible to help my parents. I know since then there have been more black male mutants, but at the time for me, he was my first, especially as a teen. And he was introduced at the same time as Monet. Generation X was so diverse with Jubilee, skin, people who looked like me and my friends back then. I was seeing my own new mutants. So here's my question. After all of that, sorry. Don't apologize. People writing in to explain why they love these characters is part of the joy of this show. So don't apologize at all. So here's the question. Everett has retained popularity even though he's been dead longer than he's been alive. He even died off screen in Age of Apocalypse as part of why Jubilee joined the Externals. He's always been this figure pushing the Gen Xers along. What are your thoughts on Everett or Sink as a concept? And do you think the idea of him as important will stay as strong now that he's back and alive? Do you think we'll ever have a moment where Emma and the Gen Xers meet and talk about how they now are together, even though half of them are older and the others are still teens, I think? Well, the character ages, don't worry about We covered that, that too. I really don't think you're ever going to acknowledge that on page. Yeah. yeah. Again, thank you for all you do, and I apologize for the length. I tried. Stay safe and amazing. Love the podcast. So thank you for writing in. I do think that like with Cypher... He is a character who was almost more impactful dead than he is alive because he mattered to all of those people. The thing is that unlike Cypher, where most of those New Mutants characters went on to be important characters in the broader world of the X-Men, outside of Monet and Jubilee, who was already an important character, the Gen X character has never really graduated in the same way. So his impact has been less. Like, even with Emma, she has a whole bunch of other dead students. So it wasn't like, you know, like, she's yeah, still, she had the Hellions already. And yeah. after him, you get the Genosian genocide with Negasonic Teenage Warhead. And I think that became the touchstone moment with Emma and a dead student in stories going forward. If you're going to flash back to something, it's Genosha. Mm-hmm. So Sink got kind of forgotten. And so for that reason, I think he's going to be much more prominent and important now alive and on the X-Men than he was. I think with Cypher, you could make arguments different ways. But honestly, he's more prominent than ever before in this new era, too. So there's something to be said for, you know, we talk a lot about death and whether or not it matters in comic books. And one criticism people had of Krakoa was like, oh, the stakes are gone, like no one's death matters anymore. And I don't think that's true because I think that the deaths that shaped characters still happened. Right. Monet is still the person she is today because Everett died in her arms in Gen X. Well, if, if the writing stays consistent and the writing stays good, then you have to have these characters reflect back on the instances that shaped them and Everett's death is one of those things that should have shaped at the very least Emma and Monet and then like the other students and Jubilee yeah like you know so I think we will see more of that because now he's back I mean we have seen the New Mutants characters reflect on the death of Doug right and I think it's going to be a similar thing it's just they got a happy ending in that they eventually came back to life but the people they left behind are still traumatized by that experience and I think also because we keep coming back to this concept of him being the everyman character that character is extremely important in pretty much every genre even if you don't acknowledge it while you're watching it the audience needs that audience proxy yeah the audience proxy it's so necessary like even in and I admit that I 
never really thought about it this way until I started working there. But like when I was at Star Trek, I fully started to understand and appreciate people's love for like Miles O'Brien on Deep Space Nine. Sure. Who, like, does not seem like a very important character, but kind of similar, similar to Everett dies a lot um, and like consistently has like the worst day or is just like dying or is reliving much also like Everett reliving time over again in like some sort of torturous situation. He's the character you drag into a mess because the other characters on Deep Space Nine are way more formidable. Yes. Like Kira and Dax and Bashir are superhuman. Right. So if you're going to do something fucked up to somebody, you're going to do it to Miles O'Brien, which is why he's a background character who over the course of it becomes more and more and more important. Exactly. And he, because he's the audience proxy, not only does the audience relate to him, but because these things keep happening to him and because the other characters care so much about him, we are forced to sympathize and empathize with him because our other favorite characters are doing so, so hard because of all of like the trials and tribulations that he continues to go through. And Everett, I think is important for that same reason, because even if he was not necessarily the most prominent X-Men character of all time, he was someone who people's relationships, romantic and platonic, really focused around for that 75 issue run. And so people care about him. Other characters care about him, thus meaning that we, the audience, have to as well. Exactly. If it's written well. I also think that Particularly looking at that first panel that we were talking about, where it's like, here is this black youth, yeah, very coded, and all of these cops are holding guns on him and stuff. There is something, I mean, you talked about how this is a character who, in the wake of Ferguson and all of the Black Lives Matter-related stuff that has grown so dramatically in public consciousness over the last several years, this is a character who was designed to be back in the mix who should be back in the mix of the x-men the tragedy of sync is that he was potentially the most powerful member of the team he was the one with the most natural leadership ability Mm -hmm. he was the one who was the most generous and kind who was not inclined toward violence and wanted to find a better way he was there to go to school (laughs) and to die like it really is I don't know if that was always, I probably wasn't always part of a plan. Right. But when you're looking at that cast, you go, who do we kill? Because it's Mm -hmm. really going to hurt. It's him because he has the most potential. Yeah. He has the potential to be someone who changes the world. Mm -hmm. And to have him struck down at 17 or 18 is devastating. There is something specifically resonant about choosing him to be the character who Krakoa gives a second chance and we really get to see, like, this is the promise of Krakoa. This character mm-hmm. is this young black man who was never given the opportunity to thrive, but now we are creating a better world and we have brought him back and the potential that was snuffed out that was so tragic, now he gets to live that life. And it's not something we can do in reality. Obviously, we can't bring back young black men who are killed by police or by violence in their schools or by whatever else in the way that he was you know he dies because a rich white woman puts a bomb in his school right you know cause trouble and he now gets to come back and set his own agenda and be his own person and serve because he always has been a person who wants to be of service now he can be a champion of this nation. And so it's a fantasy. Right. 
No, it completely is. But there's something really powerful about it, I think. I, and I think it also, like, it, it kind of... They probably weren't thinking about it this way back then, but, like, in the panel that he's introduced in, like, the fact that he gets out of that, I would already, like... That already was a fantasy. That's already a fantasy, and it's already, like, that, to me, that's the start of his second chance. Genuinely, like, coming back on Krakoa, that's chance number three. Because he, like, he's already gotten out of sort of, like, the, unfortunately, like, the everyday threats that black men yeah. in America face. So, like, he's already gotten out of that. And then the fact that he's coming back from this, this isn't even his second chance. This is chance three or four. And I think that like, that's really interesting as well to see if, A, like, I guess that's, like, acknowledged at all. Like, will they ever take us back to that first panel? Or, like, even just, like, his life in St. Louis in general, which I'm sure was, like, fraught with those sorts of encounters. I think they probably should take a light touch with it. Yeah. Because it can get heavy-handed very quickly. And mm-hmm. it's also just, like, it's a tricky thing for white writers to tackle. Right, yeah. It feels intentional to me, though. It mm-hmm. feels like bringing back the young black man who got murdered in our story, who had so much potential, bringing him back, feels very yeah. intentional to me as a choice. Mm-hmm. I mean, I really liked the bit about Seneca Gardens in right. the first issue. Just... Scott saying, Cyclops being like, mutant kind is trying to recognize all of the minorities who suffered and were oppressed and can't be here with us today to celebrate what's happening to us. And not just mutants, we mean everyone who has ever faced mm-hmm. oppression like this. And explicitly establishing the X-Men as in solidarity with Black people. And it's a very throwaway line, mm-hmm. but... This is the team that Storm led in its golden age. Yeah. You know, like, it is something that's always been there to varying degrees of success. Sometimes it's clumsily done, but it's there. And I do hope that even if it's with a light hand, we talk about this stuff and touch on this stuff through this character. Because I do think that he is the character maybe best equipped to tackle the intersection of, like, mutinous and blackness. If they don't, they're doing a disservice. And I think it's also important just because, like, as we're sitting here talking about this, I'm running through in my head trying to think of black male characters in in Marvel specifically. Because, like, I mean, DC, I think, is a little guilty of it, too. But, like, in Marvel specifically that are around and prominent, even though they don't have their own book. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, black male characters who are maybe not, like, titular, so it's not your Black Panther, it's not your Luke Cage. Right. But who are just, like, there populating the story. Who just exist in the story. Yeah. And are able to, like, talk about different issues, even if the story isn't necessarily centered around them or titled around them. And there aren't that many. No. It's, like, Prodigy is the other big one, and he doesn't have the same longevity. Right. In terms of, like, going back to the classic era, because he's a 21st century creation so he's very popular but it's not quite the same like legacy character and so I just think it is important to be able to allow Everett to like have those conversations even without being the star of his own book yeah or the star of his own story because those things are going to come up for him anyway whether he's in the lead or not well especially now that he's on this X-Men team that is doing the outreach that is basing themselves in New York like they're Mm -hmm. back in the world of humans and human concerns and so it feels like time to tackle some of that stuff. And I'm hopeful that we will, at the very least, have some of those conversations. Right. In the way that Storm and Kitty in the 80s used to talk about being Black and about being Jewish, 
and bringing home the metaphor so that it's like, do you get this? Do you get what we're doing? It doesn't have to be, like, Storm doesn't have to be like, well, as a black woman, I think X, Y, Z. But you can have, like, and Everett doesn't have to say that either. But there can be moments where Everett's like, well, you didn't think about this. Yeah. Like, Jean, because you can just walk down the street and nobody thinks about you being a minority unless they know who you are. Mm -hmm. You know, they could have that conversation and it would be interesting. Because there is a unique experience that the mutants of color have that is sometimes elided by the expansiveness of the mutant metaphor. Yes. Yeah. Last question. Krakoa welcomes ask, what do you think would be the best in sync song for sync to lip sync? And please describe the movements vividly. Oh gosh. Krakoa always sends funny questions. I gotta be honest, I only really listened to female artists and I was not like an sync <laughs> head back in the day. Uh, like I know like bye bye bye. I know okay. that, you know. Um That one would be funny if it was like about him dying, but now he's better again. But it was like yeah. he's like pantomiming the bomb thing. I don't know, that'd be a little grim. Oh no. I mean I god, I don't think I listened to a lot of sync either. I know Digital Get Down. I remember that one. <laughs> I'm like, I'm panicking now because I'm like, I, I'm trying to like, I actually think I listened to more Backstreet Boys than I did listen to NSYNC. Now that I'm yeah, because I keep thinking of songs. I'm like, that was a Backstreet Boys song. I saw no, I saw the No Strings Attached tour, but uh, I don't know. Tearing Up My Heart, I guess, was hmm. a big one. That was a big one. That was a big one. And God must have spent a little more time. Oh, it's going to be me, obviously. Yeah. Because it's going to be May, like, became a meme. This, I promise you. I got to be honest. I'm just, like, not a huge uh, sync. I know. Head, I, but I, I feel bad. Oh, of course. I forgot Candy had a had a credit on It Makes Me Ill, which is the best of course. In, sync song. That. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, honestly, like, anything Candy Burris wrote in that period. Yes. Bangs. From that period until Ed Sheeran. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, good on him, honestly. If you're not familiar with oh, yeah. listeners, Candy Burris, who is one of the real houses of Atlanta, famously was in the girl group Escape. Famously. Well, I mean, to people our age, I think. Yeah. You know, that was like, I mean, they weren't like TLC, but they were like around, you know. <laughs> and then she, for TLC, she had a really big songwriting career. And for TLC, she wrote No Scrubs. And then when Ed Sheeran wrote Shape of You, there's a melody in it that's very, very similar to the melody from No Scrubs. And when it was pointed out to him, he was like, I didn't do that on purpose, but that's one of the best <laughs> songs ever. So, you know, <laughs> obviously I've heard it. So he gave her and Tiny, who we don't have to get into, there's a lot going on. Oh, right there's a lot, yeah. But he gave the two of them a writing credit on the song, and now they get royalties from his song because he was just like, I didn't steal it on purpose, but... That absolutely is a song I listened to all the time growing up. <laughs> and so it feels weird not to credit. So there was this great Instagram video of her like rocking out to Ed Sheeran, <laughs> which I think she was just like, thank you, Ed. And I was like, well, like, but yeah. good on him because sometimes people take that shit to court. Yes. Yes. And he was just like, nope, you know what? Put them on the put them on the tracks. Oops. They earned <laughs> it. You know, my bad. Yeah. Almost makes up for those weird tattoos of his. Yeah, you know, that paid for uh, Candy's mother's house, I'm sure. So. I bet it did. Yeah, that was a big fucking song. So, yeah. you know, good on him. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm just going to land on It Makes Me Ill because that's the one in sync song that I can, that I know like backwards and forwards. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, yeah. to get back, no, to, to, I, get back I, to this nice man's question. 
it's a nice island thing. It's Krakoa. It's like a Twitter account. Oh, oh. That, like role plays as the island, the living island Krakoa, which is, it's a very funny account. I forgot RP has moved over to Twitter. Well, it's not like a real, it's just like, it's a comedy account, but it is written from the perspective of the island. And it's, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think it's going to be me, but like, it's about the X-Men election would be cute. Mm-hmm. That's fun. Yeah, I'm not a choreographer, so I'm not going to choreograph moves for you. No. That's a, it was a cute question. Thank you for asking. Kendra, I would love to hear any final thoughts you might have about Sync, and then we could talk a bit about your work and what you have coming up. Um, okay, final thoughts about Sync. I mean, it's funny, I didn't mention it in this episode at all, but uh, my ideal PB back in the day, played by a person who I would... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, who I would cast as Sync was at the time um and now i can't remember his name but gun from angel oh j august richards j august richards that was my ideal ev i don't know who it would be now because i feel like not a not a lot of young actors running around like confident enough to rock the bald head right now The bald head yeah as j august richards was which was why i kind of like naturally gravitated towards mm-hmm. him for that Iconically now openly gay. Love. Yes. Which I feel like was also part of my confusion. Like when I was seeing all the panel, the new Everett (laughs) panels being posted. Because I was like, oh my gosh, wait, did my RP thing? Like, because I used to play, I played Everett as bisexual as well. Gotcha. And I was like, wait a minute. Did all of my like RP shit just like come Did I accept this? Right. (laughs) Because I knew J. August Richards to come out and I was like, oh my. But no, um, God, yeah, I don't know who it would be now. But that said, I don't know. Final thoughts. I really enjoyed this new run, the first issue that I read. I'm excited to read more of it, which I will do when it's collected in a trade. Yeah, I'll send you some, uh, I'll send you some links to Comixology or whatever. We'll figure it out. I'm excited to see what happens for him next. I hope that they take the time to do like some of those like smaller and more introspective scenes that we were talking about where like we actually get to deal with not only the trauma of what happened in the vault, but the trauma of like what it is actually like to have been dead for so long and like mm-hmm. coming back and now interacting with all of these people who I who you used to know. Well, that's something I hope he and Jean are talking about. Right. Because she was dead for a long time also. Yes. Yeah. So that's something they could like bond over. Right. As you do. <laughs> yeah. Like the idea of coming back and all of your friends and loved ones years have passed for them and a lot has changed in their lives and you missed it. Yes. That's weird. Yeah. She did it twice. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I want to see more of that. This is exciting because I want to know what it looks like. I guess, yeah, I want to know what he looks like in a world where now the white writers as well have had their eyes opened a little bit more just in terms of like race stuff. In general. It's a very different world from yeah. 2001. Yes. And so I fully expect him, clearly, like, they've retained a lot of the sort of personality traits that we've already gone over from Gen X. He's still very kind. Uh, he still has, a, like, a high emotional IQ, it seems like. Yeah. So they've retained a lot of that stuff. But I am looking forward to seeing how things will change just based on the education that a lot of writers have now had. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for being my guest. I'd love to give you a chance to talk about your work, plug anything you want to plug. Oh, gosh. Okay. So, um, wow. The last time we recorded. um, You were at Star Trek still. Yeah. I was. Yeah, I was still at Star Trek, but also like did not have like 
a pre uh, pre order link for you my couldn't pre order the book yet, but now yeah. we can. So this is great. Okay, so I wrote a memoir. It's called Admissions. It's called full title Admissions: A Memoir of Surviving Boarding School. But if you just type Admissions and Kendra James into your search bar, it's going to come up. It is a memoir about the three years that I spent at the Taft School in Connecticut. Uh, I went there from my sophomore year until my senior year. Graduated and then went to college. And then met me, and the rest is history. And then I met Connor. <laughs> um, no, it's it's sort of twofold. It's about my experience there just in terms of like what it is like to actually go to a boarding school, but also my experience there in terms of race relations and how it played out to be specifically a black woman or a black girl on that campus. But it also touches on a little bit what the experience was like for other students of color as well. And then it also ties in the experience that I had as an admissions officer. Because when I graduated college, I went and immediately pretty much started working as an admissions officer for sort of elite New York City Mm -hmm. high schools. And there was some cognitive dissonance that was going on with all of that in terms of I was working specifically with students of color, taking them out of public schools and putting them into independent schools, despite the fact that my experience at one of these schools had not been all sunshine and roses, but we weren't allowed to talk about that. <laughs> and I know that on a personal level, you're definitely like a pro public schools kind of person. I've changed. Yeah, I used to uh, I used to think that I was going to send my kid to one of those schools. Now I still would, but uh, it would have to be under much different circumstances uh, than I was attending under. In that I've decided if I ever send my kid to one of those schools, I have to be no less than a 15 minute drive away. <laughs> critical yeah very yeah very very critical anyway so yeah that book is coming out it has a lot of um if you were a middle schooler or a high schooler from like 2000 to 2006 i think you're gonna find a lot of stuff in there that you relate to just like from pop culture just to the experience of you know either if you ever experienced tone sickness or you've ever been like the only one in a room or you've ever had trouble fitting in i think it's going to be a book that you can find stuff to relate to And I think it's going to be funny because I've heard tales of your time at boarding school and they are always, I mean, it's like not always funny, haha, but it's like definitely, (laughs) you know, you're a good storyteller. So I'm keen to read stories I've heard, to read stories I've never heard before because I can't have heard everything. Oh, no, there's, oh, it's, it's going to be great because even for my friends, uh, there's stuff in there that, yeah, I've definitely never talked about with anyone other than like a therapist. Right. Yeah, of course. uh, Yeah. So no, there's going to be good stuff in there including the story, a little taste, how I chased my roommate out of school with fake witchcraft. This one I've heard. Yes. (laughs) That I learned from a GeoCities built website. Uh, (laughs) Iconic. R.I.P. GeoCities. It's in heaven now with the angel fire. No, 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 no. (laughs) (laughs) Angel fire is probably in hell. I had an angel fire site once upon a time. I mean, I think... Who didn't? Who didn't? Uh, who didn't learn to code? That was a dark time in Web 1.0. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot of that in there. A lot of Buffy references. A lot of X-Men references. A lot of stuff about the seminal Kevin Smith movie Dogma uh, that my friend and I were obsessed with. Well, they did play it on Comedy Central like every day. Yes. When we were that age. I have since learned that a lot of black and brown girls like related to Dogma when they were younger. Interesting. Really got to dive into that. <laughs> Yeah, that feels like a piece for somewhere. I know. I'm actually I'm thinking about like trying to write that in the run up. 
Yeah. To it. I like the title a lot because there's a double meaning to it, obviously, of like admissions to school, but also you're like confessing to us, right? Yes. So it's like admissions also of self. Yeah, no, it is really very confessional because like, like I said, there was a lot of um, sort of cognitive dissonance going on when I was working. I remember. Yeah, when I was was working in admissions professionally, there was just kind of a lot of like, well, there's only so much I can say. And at the start, when I started professionally doing it, I wasn't really saying anything. And then I I started working at a school instead of just at a program. And the school was genuinely one of the worst places I have ever worked and experienced working as just like a black person in general. Mm -hmm. And it was a school where if I did not go up to the middle school every day, then the children at the middle school, the only black person they would see literally was a janitor. Right. So like that was like literally the experience there. And that's when some of sort of the cloud started lifting. And I started realizing like that these were not places that I really wanted to support. And that was put off for a while because I left that school and then went to work at a school in New York. That was one of the most wonderful and delightful places that I've ever worked at. But it's a structural problem, obviously. Yes. Yeah. So that's the book. God, I'm going to be working on that sales pitch all summer. You can forgive me because I still have not had my first publicity meeting. <laughs> that, <laughs> that happens next week, at which point I expect to get like just a list of things just being like, just hit these points. Just hit these points, yeah. Kendra. That's their job. It's not your job to come up with that. So you're doing, I thought you did fine just now. Thank you. You also are now working at Cricket Media as a podcast producer. What are some podcasts you work on that everybody should listen to? Yeah, so I produce Love It or Leave It, and I produce Keep It, which are two... Iconic. Yes, they're spectacularly funny. I love working on them, and you should give them a listen every week. And if you're looking for any of my past podcast work, I did produce two seasons of Star Trek The Pod Directive, which are also like very funny. I specialize, I guess, in comedy podcasts, even though... I myself am better on the page, um, but I do I do love to produce podcasts where other funny people like get to go off and be funny for like an hour to an hour 90. I can't imagine producing Keep It. Just listening to the raw audio must be hilarious. <laughs> it's a delight. It's a delight every every morning that every early morning that we record. It really uh, gets my spirits up there. <laughs> I'm lucky enough to know Ira and Lewis in person a little bit, and they are always, whenever I see them, so, 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 so funny in real life. And the show is, like, distilled, you know, because yes. it's like, <laughs> let's have a funny conversation. And when people are good at that, they're really good at it, you know? Yes. <laughs> are you fishing? Are we fishing here? Am I am I not serving mm-hmm. up something that I should be serving? No. People who are really, I'm, I'm joking with you. <laughs> Because you are very good at what you do. Very good at Oh, no. no. Well, thank you, Kendra. I was not fishing. I was not fishing at all. But no, okay. I, I do like to think I'm pretty good at this. And it, it yes. seems like I am. I was not expecting. I don't know what I was expecting with this. It really was just an experiment. And then here we are recording episode 46. So oh, wow. Clearly, 
You're almost you're almost up to a year. Yeah. Almost. The first episode dropped September 1st. So Oh, then you're like real close. <laughs> real close. 52 episodes would be like a full year's worth of weeks, but mm-hmm. I've had a couple skip weeks for like real life yeah. reasons. I think I took like the week of New Year's off or something like that. I mean, whatever. You should be lauded for like starting a project during a pandemic that you actually finished. I have like a half. I also did my bar mitzvah. Yeah. Like, no, that's crazy. I did two projects. I can't believe it. Frankly, I can't believe I accomplished any of it at all. That's insane. First of all, you wrote a book. I mean, I know. I know I wrote the, like, that's what my, my husband keeps saying that to me. I'll be like, he's right. John is 100% right. You wrote a whole fucking book. (laughs) I know, but it just like feels, yes, I did do that. But it feels like, I think because of that, I like wasn't able to do like any of these other like fun little pandemic projects that everyone was doing, which I know like I fundamentally did something important and good. And also that I was contractually obligated to finish. You got the book deal before the pandemic. So it probably feels like a pre-pandemic project, but you did write the book during the pandemic. Truly, I did because I was very bad those first few months, unfortunately. (laughs) I think we all were. Yeah. I mean, I didn't start this until September and we had been in quarantine for six months. Yeah. You know, it was, and I think that in the first few months we were all like, this will be over soon. Right. And then as we went through like all five stages of like trauma grief and we're like, wait, no, actually this is not ending. I mean, it's still not over. So, you know, we're back maybe halfway, but not enough. Maybe. And Delta is raging. I mean, you know, you're out in LA and the masks are back on. So. Yes. Yeah. No, those first two months I like truly, I wasn't writing that much because I really thought like, oh, I'm going to be back in my cafe like a month from now and I'll make it up there. I was making plans for April. Yes. (laughs) Like they said at first it was going to be like, we have to stay in for two weeks. And I was like, ooh, fun. Like it was going to be like, you know, like that first two weeks I was like, I'm going to like catch up on housewives. I'm going to have cocktails every day. It's going to be like a vacation. It's going to be a staycation. And then it just kept stretching on. It was like, oh, no, actually, this is like a global trauma we're all experiencing together for at least a year. Wow. Yeah. Cool. Normal yeah. behavior, normal things to experience. Honestly, like the closest thing to a comic book plot, I feel like any of us are yeah. actually going yeah. to ever like realistically live through. I will hopefully. God willing. God yeah. willing. <laughs> I hope nothing more comic booky ever really happens to us. Yes. But it was really nice to be out there in June. It was nice to see you. We got to hang out a bunch. We went to see Zola, which was we did go to- a real treat. At a good audience. What a good audience that theater that was. was. I was afraid. Audience. Remember when the trailer for the new Escape Room dropped and I had never yeah. heard of the first Escape Room? <laughs> yeah. And I was yes. just like, what is this? And I turned to the audience and said, did anyone see the first one? And everybody And no one like, had. No one had. I mean, no it was just like a beautiful it. moment. <laughs> It was a beautiful moment to be, everybody was just like, no, I haven't either. Right. What the fuck is this? <laughs> it was just a beautiful moment to be back in a theater. And Zola was the perfect movie to be like my first movie back in a theater. Hearing other people laughing around you in a movie theater was really something. Seeing Zola with you was like the theater. Because ex- our first theater, our first show back was uh, in the Heights. And I really thought that that was going to be the experience that Zola was. Yeah. And it. What, maybe if I had seen it in New York City, maybe it would have been. Maybe right. I would have like 
But no, it wasn't. Zola was like what I should have gone back in on. Like, and I knew Zola that. Zola was perfect. Yeah. yeah, no, I saw Cats right before the quarantine yes. and then Zola right after the quarantine. And I feel like that is exactly the bookend sort of of the of the year. Yeah. Well, everybody, if you're listening and you haven't been vaccinated yet and you are in a country where you can get vaccinated, please get vaccinated. Please do. As soon as possible. Well, Kendra, why don't you tell the listeners where they can follow you on social media and where else they can keep track of you online? Yes. Okay. So you can follow me on uh, Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Kendra James with an underscore. At the end. So Kendra James underscore. Yes. So it's at Kendra James underscore. Uh, In that order, don't put the underscore anywhere else. Don't forget the underscore. There is an adult film star with my name as well, but... I am the I am the black one. I am not the white redheaded one. The white one is a very talented pornographic actress. The black yes. one is the author. And here's the thing. We used to like people for some reason like used to confuse when they were trying to find me. And I think it's because she for a while used to do a lot of like DC like cosplay films. Oh, cute. But like for with porn. Which but is like great. they're porn, right? Yeah, Love I know. It. But, like, you people would, like, be Googling, like, Batgirl, and they'd find... It was very confusing, but... Well, because, oh, she's a redhead, certainly, I would think. Yes. Yeah, a yeah. lot of Batgirl A lot of Poison happening. Ivy. Yeah, yeah, there was a lot. A lot going on. Anyway. Well, you know what? If you're a DC fan, maybe check that out. Yeah, check... This is not an ad, but, you know... No. A rising tide lifts all Kendra James ships. Yes, and I believe she has uh, an affordable OnlyFans. There you go. Check that out. Good for her. Um, anyway, yeah, so you can find me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm not really anywhere else right now. That's probably going to have to change after this publicity meeting. <laughs> yeah, you need a website, girl. Do I, though? Do you have an author website yet? Sure don't. Okay, we got to You got to <laughs> As a literary agent, my my whole body just, like, did a... Connor, Connor, my author photo is due in, like, nine days. And I was supposed to go yesterday to get hair to, like, do new twists. Yeah. Did I do that? Sure didn't. No, this is the shortest I've seen your hair in years, probably. Yeah, it's actually pretty, it's like very long. It's well, you like, have it really tied yeah. up. Yeah, but no, I haven't done any of what I'm supposed to, to do. Because <laughs> like, I, 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 the idea, the idea of like ramping up to promote a book right now. Right now is weird. It's weird. It's weird. And also just as I've gotten my brain to a place where I'm like, I should be on social media less. And I think I've been accomplishing yeah. that. I've backed off, honestly, social media outside of, like, stuff for work on my main account and, like, the Cerebro account. Right. Because Twitter, in particular, I think has become, like, I think in the pandemic, Twitter was pushed to its logical extreme as, like, a place where it's at all okay to spend your time and energy. We were all trapped in the house and it became an absolute minefield of just, like, people who are upset and, like, little fights become gigantic things and I just don't for my own sanity want to engage that much with it anymore no if I not at all it. you know who else has a book coming out soon who Dorinda Medley's book oh. <laughs> make it nice is dropping August 17th and you can pre-order now just putting that out there I love to be mentioned yeah while you're uh <laughs> while you're while you're at amazon.com or barnesandnoble.com or hopefully indiebound.com to support an indie bookstore pre-ordering Kendra's book you could also pre-order the memoir by Dorinda Medley from the Real House of New York because I get a cut so that would be nice for me I mean and frankly it all it all fits together there's some Real Housewives references in my book too because I can't write anything without mentioning them it's essential 
They're my North Star. They're my yep, North Star. Same. They guide me. Same. <laughs> same. Completely. And she means in like the figurative sense, not like the character from the X-Men. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> this is the place where you have to point that out. <laughs> you do sometimes. Yeah. No, that'll happen on this podcast. You could follow Cerebro on Twitter and Instagram at CerebroCast. You could follow me on Twitter at DreamOfOrganon or on Instagram at Connor Goldsmith. You can find all of the episodes plus a link to the Cerebro Fan Discord and the Cerebro merch store at CerebroCast.com, the official landing page for the podcast. More merch is coming soon. Please join the Discord server. Join the conversation. Just don't bring any bad vibes. It's a friendly space. We want one place on the internet to be a nice place to talk about comic books. <laughs> You know, it's just hard. It's hard to talk about comic books online and not, you know, want to tear your hair out after a few minutes. You can email your questions to Cerebrocast at gmail.com. Next week's episode will spotlight Jamie Madrox, the multiple man with a guest, Ilana Levin. If you have questions about Jamie and his very long and complicated publication history, please send those to Cerebrocast at gmail.com and we will do our level best to answer them. You can support Cerebro on Patreon at patreon.com slash Cerebrocast for $5 a month at the House of Zaladane tier. You can get two bonus episodes every month. They're a little teeny bit behind schedule because of the aforementioned issue in June, but they are in the can being edited. We will be all caught up on bonus episodes by the end of August, I promise. And then there will be two every month forever. And uh, I think they're fun. So you should check it out. Thank you, as always, for your support. I love doing this show. I love watching the numbers go up every week. It's really crazy. <laughs> I get a little nervous and scared sometimes about that. But uh, I'm thrilled that you're all here on this journey with me through the wild world of the X-Men. As Kendra pointed out, it's been about a year, and I would love to keep this going for a long time. So, so many more characters to cover. <laughs> There's a lot of characters, right? <laughs> So until next time, everybody, thank you for listening and bye. Bye, everyone. It was good to be back. Maybe I'll come back again. <laughs> I'd love that. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. The only hope is X-Men.